So welcome once again to another Coffee and Heroes podcast. Uh, I'm delighted to be continuing with our book clubs. Uh, we're obviously striving to provide new content for people throughout uh, obviously the, the current coronavirus pandemic. We want to try and get new content out there for people, even if it's just to you know take your mind off things for an hour or two. Uh, obviously, we don't have a, any new content at the moment. Comics have been stopped. It's well documented. So we're probably going to be focusing on a lot of sort of classic stories, focusing on different book clubs. We've got a few different ideas in, in, the, uh, in the mix. So we're going to kick that off with a brand new one tonight. Uh, I'm your host as always, Alan. Delighted to be joined by the magic of video and audio tonight. Bye. He's here. Hey, Roddy here too. Great to see your faces. It really is. <laughs> Makes all the difference, I have to um, say. Yeah, we're, we, we were talking a little bit about, you know, we, we usually start our podcast with a little bit of chat and this kind of thing. But Roddy came up with this really good idea of keeping these book clubs timeless. You know, he can. that's the writer in him, definitely, I have to say. Well, we've all, to be fair, we've already dated it by saying about the coronavirus, so... Well, that's just to make up, just in case <laughs> you know, there's any audio fine. issues, you know, just in case people think this sounds cheap or something, you know? You know, still... Uh, yeah, i got to say, Alan, you know, normally, sort of normally on the, uh, whenever we're, we're, we're regularly together, um, you know, I try to muddle through with the, the production, but uh, you've done a, you've done a, a stellar job of... Uh, of production the past few uh past few podcasts on them uh you know obviously they added uh complication of recording people who are coming in from from two or three different locations so good job man i'll, I'll always appreciate a compliment but i have to say in this case the reason that it's so, so easy to set up is because you set it up and i dare have not touched anything in about a month uh <laughs> all the wires have remained where they were the microphones have remained where they were uh yeah i'm not changing this setup so uh I'm not the most technological, uh, technologically advanced guy in the world, so um, I'll just leave it as is. So, but uh, no, as I say, we're here to talk book club. Now, up until now, what we've always done is someone's picked a book, uh, we've went through it, nice deep dive through it. Obviously, these are fully spoiler filled. We go into most, if not all, aspects of the book. But with this, with this actual book coming up, uh, we thought it would be interesting. We had a little bit of a chat and. Obviously, movies are such a big gateway for people these days into comics. You know, they're the success of the Marvel movies, the success of the Marvel and TV shows, uh, the relative success of the DC movies. Um, but by and large, a lot of people, and, and it's certainly something I see in the store all the time, you know, people will have watched, you know, Avengers Endgame or Infinity War and say, oh, what, what comic is that based on? So you can point out Infinity Gauntlet, you know. People will ask, what is... Civil War based on? That's a very easy answer. Civil War. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we, we kind of came up with the idea of maybe comparing. Uh, so we found a really classic tale uh, which has, an, in my eyes, equally classic movie. The book, this is very much a Keith pick, so I'm going to let him introduce it from here, but this was this was a pleasure to read and to watch. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, I'm glad you uh, were so, so keen to, to join me on it. Um it is, it is as you as you say, not not necessarily what people would refer to as a classic, but certainly a modern classic. And I mean, we know that you know from years of, of reading comic books that superheroes are kind of, in general, sort of a fairly static sort of a sort of a thing. You know, the character sort of gets introduced, you know, and they maybe mess about with them a wee bit earlier on. But once 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 Stan and Jack and the and, and you know 
the, the, those creators found something that worked. It was pretty much like, you know, like the mosquito in Jurassic Park. It was just frozen in amber. Um, you know, so Spider-Man all it will always be the wisecracker and the, you know, the hard luck hero and, you know, Wolverine, you know, the, the, the violent, you know, grizzled fighter with like the, the, the forgotten tragic past and Superman, you know, he died, but he came back a few months later, Bruce Wayne, you know, he died and came back a couple of years later to pick up the game and the cow again. Um, you know, what Stan, what Stan said was that readers don't want change. They only want the illusion of change. But one character <laughs> by his existence reveals the folly of that mindset. Bucky Barnes is now known in print and on screen as the Winter Soldier. Bucky was first introduced in 1941 as Cap's teen sidekick. Uh, and since then, he's gone on undergone not one but two changes, both of which were sort of fundamental to the Marvel Universe. Uh, and changing of the status quo. First, he was killed off in 1964 and actually stayed dead for 45 years, uh, at least. Uh, and then in 2005, he was brought back in, in a, a fantastic storyline, the one that we're discussing today and given and given the new alias of the Winter Soldier. The resurrected version of Bucky sort of abandoned the roots of the teenage sidekick and instead took on this tragic narrative, uh, you know, the story was was a hit. It was a new vision of Bucky that became the setup for, you know, 2011's Captain America: The First Avenger. It was spotlighted in 2014's The Winter Soldier. He was redeemed in Captain America: Civil War and is now part of both comic and cinematic universes. You know, and in a world where film nearly is now to a lot of people more important as a record of superhero fiction than comics are. Bucky's reinterpretation has become like the truth of the matter. So what we're talking about today is the Winter Soldier story arc, which ran Captain America Volume 5, numbers 1 to 9, and numbers 11 to 14 in 2015. In 2005, sorry. It was by Ed Brubaker uh, as the writer. It was penciled by Steve Epting predominantly, and there was additional pencil work done by Michael Lark on the, uh, on the flashbacks, which were a huge part of this. Uh, John Paul Leon and uh, Tom Palmer came in as artists on number seven, which was an interlude. Uh, and Brie Becker then remained on as the writer for the whole 50th run of volume five before, you know, volume one picked up its number and again, and Brie Becker stayed on as a writer. So we're going to look at that. And as Alan says, we're going to have a look at the, the MCU's interpretation of the Winter Soldier and the Captain America sequel, and then, you know, compare the two. So, so that's where we're at. So that's doing all right, guys. That sounds like there's a wealth of material to jump into. But most important, oh, yeah, the main question everybody has, and this is something I know Roddy can answer, is why is this issues 1 to 9 and 11 to 14? What, what up with issue 10? Well, I'm glad you've asked because, well, in the books I have, this is one of the first, one of my very first Marvel books, and the reason I was attracted to it was because I'd actually just read a DC book. It does happen, people. Gotham Central, um, which is uh, Brubaker, uh, Michael Lark as well, and Greg Rucka. Keith loves Greg Rucka and Michael oh, Lark's yes. indie book, uh, Lazarus. Yep. Um, but it was sort of like when I was getting into comics, Gotham Central was one of the finest books like ever. It's still one of my favorite books. And then when I heard about this, this is one of my favorite Marvel stories. So... But um, 
So yeah, I have two graphic novels from I think 2006, 2007, but it doesn't have issue seven, which is the interlude. Uh -huh. And it doesn't have issue 10, which is a uh, House of M uh, sort of tie-in crossover thing for Captain America. It sort of, so, that's sort of interrupted the, the story, you know, I guess it was, it was uh, editors taking control and saying we've got this crossover on, so uh, you guys have to take part, so issue 10 is, which sort of interrupted the flow of the whole thing in a way. It's, re it's really strange because House of M is obviously this big massive event back in the day, I still remember it, but this has become more iconic. I don't think anybody really talks about House of M these days, do they? No, I could be wrong on that. But... Based on the look on Keith's face there, you know, this is the joy of video. Uh, I'm not too sure that uh, comment is necessarily gospel. But I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, great, totally. sometimes when there's a, a long run through the main title and then it gets broken up for it, it annoys a lot of readers because these, I mean, a Captain America reader isn't necessarily that interested in a House of M crossover, especially if a story is this good and, you know, is is on its way to become an iconic. Obviously, you don't know how much at the time, but but no, I agree with that to to an extent. I mean, House of M is something I've read once. I enjoyed it, but I've never been in a rush to reread it, whereas I've probably read Winter Soldier four or five times by now, you mm -hmm. know, and you kind of get something different out of it each time, I would say. Uh, but this is where Keith steps in and goes, House of M is his favorite Marvel story of all time. I totally disagree. Yeah, I agree with <laughs> I agree with what Ronnie said that uh that uh yeah, I mean House of M was a great great crossover. It was like eight eight issues or something. It was all about um Magneto with Scarlet Witch changing reality in order to fit Magneto's dream and, and all of that. But no, I mean to that this the Winter Soldier is is as 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 you say, a modern classic. It's it's been immortalized now in movie format but it, it i mean so so as just exactly as roddy put it you know house of m was this massive big crossover that not as many people talk about anymore and this is this is one that, that keeps coming up and up again so alan tell us a wee bit about ed brubaker the writer well as roddy says i mean uh, as he was stating regarding his work certainly in gotham central i mean brubaker is he's one of those guys that has done it all in comics he is rightly revered at marvel he's rightly revered at dc and he also has a brilliant selection of indie work as well so you know he's worked on everybody from batman to catwoman to captain america i'm told by a certain other person on this podcast that his daredevil run is exceptionally good i've yet oh, yes. i've yet to get to it <laughs> uh he also did a run on iron fist which i must admit i'm really interested in reading now after yeah. just finishing iron fist season two which is pretty great. Um, but yeah, he's Ed Brubaker's a guy who I've loved for a long time, and it's a series I've only really been able to introduce to you guys maybe in the last year or so, but he's had a long-running crime noir comic called Criminal that I'm just a massive, massive fan of. He always writes, and Sean Phillips is always the artist. It is a multi-layered noir masterpiece that's been going for over a decade at this point uh th there's crossover characters throughout it you know brubaker to me comes across as such a great uh such a great long-term planner i would say um and his work has always been well received you know he's won eisner awards he's won harvey awards uh, he recently did another 
story with Sean Phillips, which was called The Fade Out, which was about golden era Hollywood. It was about the death of an up-and-coming actress and sort of all the behind-the-scenes studio motivations behind that and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but yeah, Brubaker is uh, Brubaker's one of the very best out there. I would say possibly top five writers today. Yeah, easily. Yep, definitely. Um, he and uh, he and Sean Phillips have something else coming out very shortly. Hopefully, isn't there? Uh, right? Yeah, they have a original graphic novel coming out soon called Pulp, which yeah. seems to deal with the theme of cowboys. And again, I think it's set nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, off the top of my head. Um, yeah. It's one that we've got quite a few pre-orders for in store. Obviously, with everything that's going on in the world at the moment, release dates will be subject to change and so forth. But you know. When Brubaker works with Phillips, especially in my opinion, anyway, it's it's almost guaranteed to be a home run. It's one of those dream team pairings in comics. The way you have Donny Cates and Stegman who do so well together, you've got Schneider and Capullo who do brilliant work together. You know, it's just one of those partnerships. I just think is is outstanding. So yeah, Brubaker, big big fan of his. I have to say. Um, so he's obviously writer on this. And what about? on art because i know you're a fan of steve epting aren't you keith oh yeah definitely i mean i would say that i would say that you know if 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 brubaker has two partners the first would be sean phillips and the second would be steve epting um sort of image wise steve epting was on velvet with uh with ed brubaker great story, um, but steve story. epting is also well known for his work in avengers and obviously this captain america run but he's worked across marvel and dc and indy since the late 80s um he, he became a regular collaborator with uh, Ed Brubaker on this run, but they also teamed up for a book called The Marvels Project, which was uh, an eight-issue book, 2009-2010, uh, and it sort of looked after, you know, some of that, some of those original characters, uh, you know, those Golden Age characters, Angel, Human Torch, Namor, Captain America, Nick Fury, John Steele. It's a really, really fantastic uh, eight-issue book. Um, actually, if, if, yeah, if you haven't read it, it would be uh, be highly worth uh, picking up. You know, it's the I guess the the timely age heroes. You know, the timely comics mm-hmm. heroes from the Marvel universe. Um, so, so uh, very much into what Ed Brubaker I guess knows because a lot of those heroes uh, feature in this Winter Soldier storyline as well. Um, so yeah, so he was the he's the main penciler, and then uh, the second penciler, uh, the guy who who did a lot of work on the flashbacks in this is Michael Lark who. As Roddy rightly says, I'm a huge fan of. He's the co-creator of Lazarus with Greg Rucka. Um, Lark, he did. He's penciled a lot for DC, isn't that right? Batman and Gotham yeah. Central, yeah. as I said, and Hawkman and some stuff. Um, so yeah, so uh, he's on there. Um, you had we had mentioned John Paul Leone as well. Yeah, uh, he's, he's he's an artist. I'm a I'm a fan of. Uh, he has done a lot of good Batman work. He did a two issue storyline on detective comics, the new 52 called terminal with, um, I think it was Benjamin Percy off the top of my head, which was just a wee two issue interlude, but it really stuck with me. Really, really great story. Um, he's recently been doing the likes of Batman creature of the night, uh, as well. But yeah, John Paul Leon's, he's another one of those guys who's worked on it all. X-Men, Superman, Batman. Um, uh, it's just, it's a real, it's a real embarrassment of riches almost on this book and they're all very very much at the top of their game to say the right. least i mean even one of one of the issues that steve epting works on as well i think it's worth mentioning just quickly 
Uh, Mike Perkins works with him on it. Isn't Mike Perkins the current artist on Lois Lane? That's right, yeah. Which is a book yep. we're we're very much enjoying as well. So, so yeah, I mean the 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 team on this, you couldn't have really got a much sort of stronger lineup uh, on, on all on all forms, really. And uh, John Paul Leon, Roddy, uh, was the artist on Earth X as well. A lot of it. Ah, yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm, there you are. Um, so let's talk a wee bit about the uh, the characters featuring in the Winter Story, the Winter the Winter Soldier storyline, will we? Yeah, by all means. Uh, sure. Do a wee bit of a, a round robin. So, I mean, obviously we can't uh, we can't we can't uh, talk about the story without talking about uh, about the the leading man, uh, Captain America, Steve Rogers. Yeah, um, I mean, it's not like he needs much introduction. I would say at this point, <laughs> um, you know, there's there's an argument to be made certainly with the success of the movies and so forth. I would probably put Captain America in probably the top five most recognizable superheroes in the world. Um, you know. Be- because of portrayal of him in the movies and so forth, I, I always see Captain America a little bit, certainly in writing, as a little bit like Superman. He can come across as a little bit dull in the wrong hands, but if you get the right creative team and the right writer, and so because he's so righteous almost, you know what I mean? Like Cap sees the, the world very much in black and white, right and wrong, and I would argue that Superman can be the same an awful lot. But... Uh, Getting slightly off topic there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so obviously Captain America, you know, just in case you're somehow not familiar with him, you know, he's the original super soldier. He was uh, unable to enlist during World War II as he had many physical shortcomings. He was too small. He was prone to sickness. He was, you know, he just couldn't put on muscle mass. He, But he had sort of the heart of a lion almost. So he always wanted, he had that will and it basically exceeded the strength of his body. But he he was able to uh, volunteer for a dangerous experiment, and that transformed him. And this is where I think sometimes with Cap, people are a little unfair. I've I've talked to people in the store about this, and there's some people who just don't like Cap because they basically say he's not a superhero; he's just a guy on steroids. And I think they're kind of missing the point, the whole point of the character. Uh, but we'll get to more on that later, I would yeah. say. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's interesting in this one because uh, similar to the first Avenger, you know, they they did the origin of Cap really, really well. So as soon as the the uh, experiment is successful with him, unfortunately, the um, there's an assassination of the uh, the creator of this super serum, and therefore Cap turns out. Skin, isn't it? Yeah, so so Cap turns out to be unique. You know, he's one of a kind. And uh, th- in this one, it's really interesting because this story is very much a Captain America, a little bit off balance, a little bit angry. He He's not f- in full confidence. Um, and then there's some nice sort of flashbacks and bits and pieces. There's bits and pieces in here with his time with the invaders as well. It sort of has Cap all over the place in this book a little bit. So you get a really great snapshot of his entire life, I would say. Um, but what... This is one, Roddy, you had, sorry, Alan, but nope. you had... You had mentioned that you really picked up on that this is sort of the first time you'd seen Cap like this. Yeah, that's. I think that's what makes it part of it so exciting. What you were saying about the heroes being trapped in amber when you read when you read something, it's just like you're reading the status quo. But for me, when I read it, it was like Captain America doesn't seem like the Captain America I know. He's like he's off balance. He doesn't really know who to trust, um, and he's just. He doesn't really know how to take charge of the situation, and he's 
he's sort of almost dealing with this this guilt of the Winter Soldier and Bucky, and he doesn't really he doesn't really know how to process it. Where I'm like, I know Captain America as just not not just that's not a slight on him. It's just he has um, virtues, and you know his heart is his main superpower. He yeah, is yeah. The, the greatest man that we know, but. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting one to see him sort of... He's not himself in this one, definitely. He falters. He falters. Yeah. He's, um, yeah like he's, you see the human side of him in this one more so. Yeah. And fallacy yeah. as well, you know. Um, Agent 13, Sharon Carter's in this as well. Um, so Agent 13 is Cap's sometime love interest. Uh, she is... She was originally written as the, the grandniece. Well, she was originally written as the sister of uh, Cap's wartime love interest, Peggy Carter, but then because of elastic time, that, that started to make less and less sense. And she was retconned, I think, in about the, in about the 70s as Peggy's grandniece. She's a, a very, very capable agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, you know, and S.H.I.E.L.D. at this time is, a, is still a viable organization within the Marvel Universe, uh, which is where this sort of, one of the points that this differs from the movie, um, you know, and it's a, it's a super spy organization associated with the UN. So, but in this, I, I don't know what the, the history is, but in this, Cap um, and Sharon aren't together. Uh, you know, Steve's very much, well, you're my ex sort of thing. Uh, so I don't know what the situation is, but that's that's there anyway, uh, which is interesting. So over to you, Alan. Oh, back Roddy, actually, I was going to say, we, we, need that, uh, uh, we need that wonderful man to start talking. Uh, exactly. Tell us about Nick Fury, Roddy. Yeah, well, I think I have the same sort of hair as this Nick Fury at the moment. So, <laughs> so you have a hair, so you have no, a hairstyle similar to David Hasselhoff. Then is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, this one, you know, obviously he's going to be, he will be completely different in the film. This is not the Nick Fury that many people really recognize from the MCU. This is the the classic Fury. Uh, sort of grey-haired, uh, still with the eye patch, but he's got his shield uniform, which is his big white boots, you know, that kind of uh -huh. old-school Nick Fury, cigar-chomping Nick Fury, um, leader of the World War II Battalion, the Highland Commandos, his lifespan artificially elongated by the Infinity Formula running through his veins, um, Caucasian eye patch, director of shield, and he's... This, this kind of part is a bit weird because it doesn't... <laughs> when I was reading it, I was like, this seems so far away from the Winter Soldier. But um, So he's he's retired as the director of S.H.I.E.L.D. and unceremoniously, I should say, in 2014 and replaced by his son, Nick Fury Jr. And that sort of brings in the, the character into line with the Ultimate Universe version that was patterned on Samuel L. Jackson, whose portrayal in the films is phenomenal. Um, this version of Fury, um, he's disgraced after Original Sin, and he becomes the Unseen, replacing Uatu, the Watcher, and he's unable to interfere in the events he witnesses. And yeah, but here, this is very much the the super spy, the director, and the he's the string, the puppet master almost. He is. He's, yeah. he's pulling strings all over the place. He's still very. Uh, that that's one. That's one point where. Where I think that that this version of Nick Fury and the movie version of Nick Fury cross over. I mean, he always seems to have his hands on all the keys and all the buttons, and he knows mostly what's going on. 
And if he doesn't know what's going on, he doesn't like that and he needs to know what's going on and he quickly finds out, you know? So I think that, I think the, the personality sort of comes through and the Samuel L. Jackson version, that's where they cross over. But, but, uh, but yeah, very, very, very different in a lot of ways, very similar in a lot of other ways. So it's interesting yeah. with this portrayal of Nick Fury. Do you, do you guys know the movie True Lies? Yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. So James Cameron is a massive comic book nerd at one point he was supposed to direct Spider-Man and it just it never oh. happened for whatever reason. But he based um, Charlton Heston's character in True Lies on Nick Fury. He even has the eye patch and everything. And see, just right. and see, just looking at this cover that I have, I mean, that's Charlton Heston, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Right there. Uh, just <laughs> yeah. random little uh, Easter egg there, to say the least. Yeah. There you are. There you are. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we'll, we'll continue going through some of the, sort of the main players in this. Um, so sort of moving on to more of the bad guys. Uh, we've got Vasily Karpov. Uh, he's a ruthless but efficient Soviet officer. So uh, during World War II, he was involved in a joint operation with Captain America and the Invaders, in which he helped foil a plot of uh, Red Skull and Masterman. The operation left Karpov with a strong respect and fear towards Cap, and afterwards he adopted a young boy, Alexei Stoshkakov. I'm quite impressed with that oh, pronunciation. Well done, yeah. uh, <laughs> whose mother was killed in the battle, uh, so he raised Alexei as, as his own. Um, so again, going back to the wartime stuff here in 1945, following, following the incident in which the sabotage of Zemo's rocket led to the freezing of Steve Rogers and the apparent death of Bucky, Karpov retrieved a wounded Bucky Barnes from the ocean and now part of Department X, Karpov revived, repaired and reprogrammed Barnes to become the Winter Soldier. Uh, so uh, who the Winter Soldier being a ruthless assassin used in numerous Cold War operations against America and her allies. Um, quite different to what happens in the movie. Yeah, least. very much. Um, but yeah, in the movie Captain America Civil War, Vasily uh, Karpov was a Hydra operative embedded inside the Russian Armed Forces, who was given responsibility for overseeing the Winter Soldier program, successfully arranging the assassination of Howard Stark and the deployment of the newly created Winter Soldiers. Um, who else we got here? You want to take this one, Keith Alexander Lucan? Yeah, so Alex, so Lucan Alexander Lucan is kind of the uh, so he's the kid that that Karpov um took under his wing uh in that in 1945 and that or sorry in, in in the 1940s and in that russian village uh that you mentioned but uh looking as kind of he's kind of the the bad guy of the of the piece so he was born in the soviet village of kronos sometime in the late 30s his mother was killed during the course of that battle with uh, red skulls forces the avengers supported by the the invaders sorry supported by the soviet forces uh Vasily Karpov takes the orphan Lukin as his protege, and in the ensuing decades, Lukin becomes an important figure in the Soviet military and the KGB, rising up to the rank of general. And after Karpov uh, passes away from the dissolution of the USSR, Lukin is left in custody of a large cache of, of special projects developed over the decades, including the Winter Soldier. He sells some of these devices to the highest bidders to raise funds. And in one instance, that we see at the very start of the book, He's selling weapons to the Red Skull himself. He refuses to part with the Winter Soldier for anything less than the reality-altering Cosmic Cube, which Red Skull is very often associated with, but who's not? he's not in possession of it at the moment, and he wouldn't give it up in any case. So five years after that meeting, the Red Skull finally 
recovers the cosmic cube, only to be assassinated by the Winter Soldier and Lucan's orders. But the Red Skull always has something up his sleeve. He's not Captain America's arch nemesis for no reason. Um, so he uses the cosmic cube to transfer his own mind before death into Lucan's body, and the two men are stuck there together and and that's described as but and horrifically and at one point as like rats in a cage just two, two minds and in, in the one head it's a horrible thought um so Lucan uses the cosmic cube to enrich his his legitimate business front which is Kronos corporation named after the village that he grew up in uh but you know when in a fit of rage he and, and i guess influenced by the cosmic cube he harms one of his friends Lucan has the cube sent away after the Winter Soldier destroys the cube and regains his own memories, looking in the Red Skull, later on, you know, after this, they work together against their common enemy of Captain America, even as the Red Skull sort of wedges this campaign of control over Lucan's body and Lucan sort of vows to kill himself before allowing that to happen. So it's so beyond even the Winter Soldier storyline, you know, Lucan <clears> becomes <throat> as, as, a, as, as the host for the Red Skull. So upon the, you know, the Winter Soldier discovering Lucan's connection to the Red Skull, the Red Skull and Luke, and they fake their death to continue and operate, operate in the shadows. At this time, Bucky has become Captain America. Uh, who compare, they contrive to abduct Sharon and, you know, attach a machine that will bring, you know, Steve has been deplaced in time at this stage. This is the Captain America man out of time story. Uh, so they bring, they, they, they contrive to bring back the time displaced Steve in order to put Red Skull's consciousness in the body and all of this sort of stuff. So, so Lucan's going to be around for a wee while, so you may as well get used to him. Um, and then even even in the most recent so Tanahashi Coates run of Captain America that I think we're both reading, Alan. Yeah. Uh, Lucan, it's been revealed that Lucan, the dead Lucan, uh, is brought back by his wife, Alexa, um, to join the Paralite. And in bringing Lucan back, she has also brought back the Red Skull's mind. So... Um, Kind of, he's a long-running, long-running villain now. Because I mean, if he was created in two thousand and four, I mean, he's still around. You know, sixteen years later, so that's something. Um, <laughs> Lucan, Lucan doesn't appear in the uh, Lucan doesn't appear in the movie, the the Winter Soldier. But there's an awful lot of Lucan and Alexander Pierce, which is the role that Robert Redford played. Um, and if you if you read the book and 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 watch the movie again, you sort of see that naturally. <laughs> having read the story whenever I watched the movie the first time around I was going that's going to be the Red Skull it'll be the Red Skull yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't the case of course could easily have been still amazes well, me to uh... this day that Robert Redford was in a superhero movie absolutely astounds me I don't know I mean if you think about it in terms of an espionage movie and the espionage movies that Robert Redford was in oh those li- <laughs> those links are definitely deliberate but just for such golden era old school Hollywood royalty to be in a movie about superheroes just it amazes me. Still does to this day. Well it certainly certainly legitimized it a wee bit, I think. Um what what is it what is it? Three days in Condor um yeah. is like big inspiration for this one. So it's ob- like it's obvious the way he's in there. He is put in there because of the those films. But yeah. Yeah, I think it gives it a certain gravitas. This movie, you know, but yeah, for sure. Um, speaking of the Red Skull, talk about him for a little bit. Um, Johan Smith. This is the, um, when you think of Captain America, his biggest arch nemesis. It's the Red Skull. That's what you Expert. think of. 
Um, personally trained by Hitler during World War II as the perfect Nazi and the Fuhrer's right-hand man. Obviously, Hitler wasn't all about that. Didn't really trust him, uh, especially because Red Skull made no secret of his ambition to supplant Hitler. Um, the Red Skull was the impetus for the creation of Captain America himself, and in the modern day inhabits a clone body of Steve Rogers. Um, as we see in the films, and certainly in the comics, he is obsessed with the power of the Cosmic Cube. The and Tesseract. Of incredible, yeah, oh yeah, that's right. Uh -huh. um, an item of incredibly incredible reality warping power. And at the beginning of this story, a piecemeal Frankenstein Cosmic Cube made from pieces of other destroyed cubes. Um, yeah, here we go. Red Skull is assassinated by the Winter Soldier in this one. Uh -huh. um, under orders from uh, Mr. Lucan himself, uh, who wants to possess the cube, as Keith mentioned. Um, when the Red Skull was shot, he attempted to use the Cosmic Cube to switch bodies with Lucan to survive. But, you know, he only managed to transfer his mind. Um, so the two enemies are trapped together, waging constant war for dominance, which uh, Red Skull seems to be progressively winning. And, um, yeah, he doesn't appear in the this film, and that's probably for the best. <laughs> <laughs> well, could you imagine the film with him in it? I don't know if it would. Well, it was never going to work after uh, Hugo Weaving said he never wanted to play the Red Skull ever again. <laughs> unfortunately, which is a shame. Um, but a couple of characters who were in this and also in the movie, though in slightly different capacities. So Crossbones makes an appearance here. Brock Rumlow, you know traditional brutal mercenary assassin and right-hand man of the red skull he's he's almost given a bit of an origin story as crossbones in the winter soldier movie and then becomes fully crossbones when it becomes civil war uh you've also got a, a late appearance in the book from falcon uh who he's he's there as a bit of a steadying force for captain america you know cap towards the end of the story he's increasingly unhinged increasingly off balance he he gives a little bit of support to him to say the least um so falcon's cap's friend his teammate and sometimes sidekick uh certainly when it comes to the movie falcon is a much bigger part of it uh but he does make an appearance here as well but i think the next character we talk about it it, it has to be keith talking about <laughs> well so i guess uh buggy barnes the winter soldier um is the is the key to this this particular story uh james buchanan bucky barnes um he uh, was originally introduced as as we said earlier perhaps teenage sidekick uh he was created by joe simon jack kirby and first appeared in captain america comics number one in 1941 hey, what's that why do you why do you think uh, bucky was introduced why do you, i think bucky was introduced i don't know go ahead you know the reason? I'd I think so. Alan might know the reason. Why Bucky was reintroduced? Uh, no, why he was first introduced. Oh, probably because of Batman and Robin. Yep. Mm -hmm. Robin, I think Robin was maybe a year before, I think. I need to look it up, but yeah. Sorry, carry on. I just thought I would yeah. test you with that. No, there you are. I mean, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I guess the sidekick characters were really to... Uh, give teenagers and kids who are reading the comics someone to relate to. 
Yeah, it was almost yeah, like you know, that was their eyes and ears, so the, their portal into the stories, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, their their point of view character. Um, but yeah, so so Bucky Bucky was the he was the camp mascot at uh, at Camp Lehigh, uh, where where Steve Rogers was serving, you know, in his alias. Um, so Bucky accidentally walked in on Steve changing in his Captain America uniform. He discovers that his friend's Captain America, and effectively insists on joining him. And then next thing appears in this mad blue and red costume you know red tights totally weird boots you know um so he, he apparently undergoes you never see this in the 1940s comics but he apparently undergoes extensive training and is assigned to captain america as a partner so the military justified putting a 15 year old boy in harm's way by using as a symbol to rally the youth of america you know in the same way against the hitler youth um so that's how the military justified it you know then they fight the Red Skull together, you know, Cap accepts Bucky as his partner, and together Cap and Bucky fight Nazis at home, abroad, as a duo, as part of the invaders, they fight Masterman on their first mission. What's what's in, what's what's revealed in here for the first time, and it's just cool as, is that, you know, Bucky was this, you know, blue and red dynamo, you know, he was he was set up to, to counter the Hitler youth, but we learned that Quietly, Bucky served as an advanced scout for for Captain America and the Invaders. You know, doing doing the dirty work that superheroes couldn't be seen doing. You know, so in this in this book, we see Bucky sneaking sneaking behind enemy lines and and cutting soldiers, cutting sentries' throats and stuff, which is just it just lends this darkness to to the the concept of Bucky that just was fantastic and mind blowing because no one had you know what I mean. No one ever thought about him that way, but. In the closing days of World War II in '45, Captain Bucky tried to stop, classically tried to stop this villainous, you know, the villainous Baron Zemo from, from uh, launching this experimental drone plane that's going to destroy London. Uh, he launches, he launches the, this plane with an armed explosive device on it, and Barnes and Rogers are in, in hot pursuit. They reach the plane just before it takes off. They're, they're both, they hang on to the plane. They jump off their, their motorbike and hang on to the plane, you know. And Bucky's closer to the plane than Cap is. And Bucky tries to unsuccessfully defuse the bomb. Cap can't hold on. He drops off. And, you know, Bucky doesn't drop off before the, the plane explodes in midair. And, you know, Cap's thrown into the English Channel. Both are believed to be killed in action. You know, Cap's hurled into the freezing waters and his body's preserved in suspended animation in a block of ice, which is found decades later by the Avengers while searching the Arctic for the Submariner. And, and this story we learned that history we'd always acknowledged and which Cap had always believed isn't the case that Bucky's fate wasn't to perish, you know, in those water, in that explosion, but was to become the amnesiac, brainwashed, feared, legendary Russian operative, the Winter Soldier, and eventually, beyond this story, to become the wielder of the shield himself. Pretty cool stuff. I mean, there's lots of parallels, certainly, with uh, Robin then becoming Nightwing, Bucky becoming... Winter Soldier. I mean, uh, is this a coincidence that these are two of your favorite characters? Um, you're probably not wrong, Alan. And I was thinking about that actually. I was thinking about that whenever uh, we were talking about the movie and we were talking about some of the some of the comparisons. I don't, I don't think it is. They're both sidekicks come good. I mean, there, there, there's some of the there, some of the very few characters in comics. You know, we we obviously kicked this all off by talking about how comics are a very static medium sometimes, and the status quo is maintained. These are two of the characters that exist outside of that. 
because we're introduced to them both as sort of young boys and as sidekicks and they are some of the few comic book characters to grow up and adopt their own persona and become their own man and you know it's it's just it's an interesting link i think between the two uh i have to say Um, not wrong not wrong but uh, no, one thing which is interesting as well, and I'm guessing this is something that Marvel retroactively fixed. Um, so sort of the next characters we were going to chat about quickly were the Invaders. So yeah. the Invaders, you have Namor, the original Human Torch, Toro, Captain America, and Bucky. Uh, very much in this, because we, we're, we've we just come off the back of, a, of an excellent 12-issue um, storyline on the Invaders. And in that, Bucky's definitely older, isn't he? Whereas in this original Invader stuff, was Bucky a lot younger? Um, Bucky in the original Invaders was was supposed to be whenever he, whenever Bucky met first became Bucky, first took on the unit became Cap's sidekick. He was fifteen, I think. By the time by the time he he died, he was supposed to be closer to twenty one. Mm-hmm. Um, so he operated in that sort of six-year age period okay. you know during the war so um and obviously he's much older in the movie um you know he's uh in the, in the original cap movie you know Sebastian, your man that plays him stan sebastian stan you've got that name the wrong way around sebastian stan there you go <laughs> yeah we go uh he uh you know he in the in the in the comic book you know bucky is very much like steve's little brother there's four years between them or something but in the, in the movie it's nearly the other way around the same age but you always look as bucky as his sort of the big brother he never had yeah and the one always looking out for him and that kind of thing yeah um, yeah so but yeah that, that's sort of that's the sort of time period that, that he was whenever they were the invaders were were operating so okay cool cool i mean yeah the invaders they make some uh some appearances in this book as well um very much in uh, flashback material obviously there's no appearances of any of the invaders in the movies um and then there's just probably one more character it's worth sort of talking about that has an important part to play in this one uh why don't you tell us roddy about jack monroe yeah so jack monroe otherwise known as nomad um so he's sort of is it like an interesting uh study of retconning which you've talked quite a lot about um and there's a lot of retconning going on in this this book um so having disappeared in the 1950s um captain america and bucky were both briefly revived in 1953 for a year with bucky um appearing alongside captain america <laughs> commie smasher <laughs> as, the red as the hero was cover built um its stories published during the next year in young men and men's adventures as well as in three issues of captain america that continued the old the old numbering um as you may have guessed seals were pretty poor and it was discontinued um so beginning in avengers number four in march 1964 um this is establishing the original Captain America and the story of Bucky going missing at the end, uh, near the end of World War II. Um, and they were secretly replaced by the then US President Harry S. Truman with successor heroes using those identities. William Birdside is Cap and Jack Monroe is Bucky. The pair were enhanced with a rediscovered super soldier serum, but without the stabilizing Vita ray exposure, they succumbed to psychotic symptoms and were placed in suspended animation. Reawakening years later and seemingly cured of his psychotic symptoms, Jack 
uh, first pairs with the original Cap and Bucky, um, and later adopts Roger's former identity as Nomad, and eventually parts with Steve uh, going solo. Um, then the sort of two repartner during Steve's uh, sojourn as the captain, parting on bad terms, and Nomad eventually ends up shedding the spandex, taking on a urban vigilante persona, uh, warring with drug dealers, kidnap kidnaps an infant girl from her drug de- drug addicted mother, naming her Bucky, <laughs> and taking on problems not usually the purview of superheroes such as AIDS, homelessness, and hate crimes. Uh, a ni- 1990s lone wolf and cub type character. Um, Nomad is, is eventually believed dead after a confrontation with his old hometown Nazi militia, but it was revealed that he was in fact placed in suspended animation. An innocent bystander's, bystander's body was used to replace his. Are you still with me? Sometime later, Henry Geitch receives Monroe and infuses his body with nanites that placed him under command and turned Monroe into a new version of the Scourge of the Underworld. Though Monroe was conscious and aware of his actions, he could neither restrict or resist Reich's orders nor reveal his true identity or details of his servitude to anyone. A Scourge, he battled the Thunderbolts, who Mr. Miller absolutely loves, who eventually freed him from Gorge's control. Uh, After returning to his original nomad costume and identity, Monroe began to relapse, into psychotic episodes, episodes and symptoms, something which will has a very common theme in this book. During the Winter Soldier arc, Monroe is checked in on his former ward he called Bucky, who has since been adopted. Jack is shot dead by a mysterious assailant, and as he leaves a bar, the cyborg assassin Winter Soldier is ultimately revealed to be Monroe's assassin. So yeah, that's Nomad. <laughs> plays a very important uh, role in this book. He does, and that's, I mean, that's that interlude, that's that. Uh sort of issue seven uh, is, is underlooted there, you know, and that offers Monroe. But it's just, it's really interesting, I think, that, you know, that Marvel sort of brought back Cap and Bucky as as these, you know, fighting communism in the 50s. But whenever they, you know, they, they were there briefly, you know, for a few issues. But then whenever Cap reappeared, then in Avengers 4 in 1964, whenever he committed deep freeze, they had to figure out if Cap went into the ocean after World War II, and come out of deep freeze, you know, in the Avengers. Who the hell was who the hell were these was was Cab and Bucky and, and they were fighting communism in the nineteen fifties. So they, they, they were forced to do this retconning maneuver and I think they did a really good job with it, you know. It was Maybe the most important one, I don't know. <laughs> Could you imagine if they'd stayed like that? <laughs> who knows what kind of comic we'd have today if that was the case. Although, uh, I do, although I do like the idea, I must admit, of commie smasher, exclamation mark. Uh, <laughs> Captain America, commie smasher. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, that's that's all the, the principal players of the book. Um, so, I mean, just to give anyone sort of a brief overview of the, the, the basic storyline and overview of it. So, A Midnight Call to Judy brings Captain America aboard the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier to identify the corpse of his most feared adversary, the Red Skull. The shocking murder of Cap's oldest enemy may not be the end of Skull's plans, however, because whoever shot the Skull has stolen his final project, an unfinished cosmic cube with the potential power to alter reality itself. Adding to the imminent danger, a cadre of the Skull's followers has already set in motion a plan to ignite bombs in the hearts of Paris, London and Manhattan, causing untold death and destruction. 
Racing against these bombs rapidly ticking clocks, the star-spangled Avenger must not only solve the mystery of his nemesis murder, but find the cube before it can be used in the Red Skull's malevolent plot against the United States. Then the questions plaguing Captain America's dreams and memories have been answered in the most brutal way possible. And in the wake of this brutality, General Lucan makes his first all-out assault, tearing open old wounds and threatening to make new scars that will never heal. Um, yeah, so just obviously having recently read the book, uh, you know, what's everyone's initial thoughts? Obviously, Keith, this was your choice. Uh, why don't you lead off with uh, your feelings? Um, so, yeah, it was, I mean, I guess I've, I've always... I mean, for as long as sort of we've been chatting comics, I've always sort of talked about this book, uh, about The Winter Soldier, about Ed Brubaker. Um, and I, I mean, I honestly always felt it was, you know, I, I read it in singles uh, in 2004, 2005, whenever it first came out, and was absolutely blown away by it, blown away by by the, the absolute balls of what Ed Brubaker had done, like, you know, just having the cojones to, to do what he did. Um, because Buggy's death was one of the few comic book deaths. And, I, you know, in a time when, you know, death is very much a revolving door in comic books and really always has been, uh, you know, it's this, this death, the death of Bucky remained unreversed. And it was, it was known as, uh, it was known as the Bucky clause. Uh, and that, that was that in comics, no one stays dead except for Bucky, Jason Todd and Uncle Ben. Uh, all three were brought back to life in their very respective universes in 2006 uh, Uncle Ben turned out to be an alternate Uncle Ben from another reality and didn't hang around for long. But you know, Bucky, Bucky, and and, and the Red Hood stuck. Now I would argue that one's slightly more significant than the other, uh, but we'll talk about that later. Um, but you know, Bucky's death was always used in the Marvel universe to explain why virtually no superheroes had sidekicks. No responsible hero wanted to endanger. A minor in a similar fashion, and I think to some extent that was that was Stan's. We dig it, Batman and Robin. Um, you know, he disliked the plot device of kid sidekicks, saying in the seventies that one of my pet peeves has always been the young teenage sidekick of the average hero. Uh, Roger Stern and John Byrne had also considered trying to bring Bucky back before that, but then decided against it. So, whenever Brubaker did it, the way he did it with with such a fantastic story uh crafted by both himself as a master writer and steve epting and and the, the slow steady burning way in which it was done and the way it affected steve the, the fact that a he did it the way he did it the fact he nailed it to the degree that he did which meant that fandom and you know what fandom's like fandom can turn on on a on a, on a creator like that you know and uh, comic fandom can be particularly fickle but the fact that he did it in such a way that most of fandom agreed with him, I mean, that was just that was just a, a, a great move. Like so, so yeah, modern classic. You know, I think rereading it, you know, ahead of the podcast, I just I'd forgotten how good it actually was, um, and I'm I'm glad I had the, the chance to, to read it. So up there with is maybe the best cap run ever written in my mind, um, and and up there with with one of the best comic stories written what about yourself Roddy yeah I'm inclined to agree with Keith I sort of I sort of talked about a little bit um so one of my first Marvel books and the exciting part was going um because obviously the there's the rich history is 
of the Marvel Universe is implied in the book, but we also see it with the flashbacks and the relationship between Bucky and Cap. Um, but going back to it, knowing a lot more, having read like an absolute ton more of comics, I picked up on an awful lot more and be like, oh yeah, uh, I know yeah. the Invaders now, like properly. I know everyone. I know like little nuances of it all, um, and I really liked, I really liked that. Um, but what first drew me to it was when you read comics, it's that it's like that out of timeness. It's just the sometimes you feel like everything's the same and there's no consequences. And there certainly was consequences for the characters within this book, but also for the wider um, continuity of the Marvel Universe. Like, it was exciting that this could... It introduced a new character um, who was an old character, and it was incredibly exciting to realize, like, they can do this. Like, why why isn't it happening all the time? Mm. But is this one so good because it doesn't happen all the time? Um, but yeah, it's, um, it plays so beautifully with the Marvel history and I love seeing a vulnerable cap. That was one thing that really excited me with the character. Um, and, uh, yeah, the art is phenomenal. The art almost for me is like, like the standout part because it, it's drawn beautifully. Like, um, it feels like an espionage thriller as well, you know? Yeah, what about you, Alan? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's uh, it's it's been one of those runs that I had not read before. Um, I mean, anybody who comes into the store, or listens to the podcast or anything, obviously knows my, you know, don't want to say loyalties, but my preference certainly lies with DC, and therefore there's a lot of Marvel history that I'm not overly familiar with. Um, and, and I've had my eyes opened up to quite a bit. And I think it's quite nice that you were talking about that Invaders run because I think that's actually quite a perfect accompaniment to this. Because... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting because they're written fi 15 years apart with completely different creative teams. But I, I know exactly what you mean when you when you talk about how that gave more reverence to what you were reading here, uh, knowing those pre-existing relationships and so forth. I mean, I'm a sucker any time for classic sort of spy noir stories. You know, I grew up a James Bond fan. I, I, I you know, you had mentioned the book earlier, Keith, that um, ep that these guys had worked on before, Velvet. I'm a big, big fan of that book. Um, just spy stuff in general, I really, really like. So to to Thank combine, so to combine spy and noir with superhero, you know, that's just that that's a winning combination. So. Yeah, I mean, it it goes back as well a little bit to, you know, what you were saying about those unspoken rules, you know, of, you know, Uncle Ben is dead, Bucky Barnes is dead, leave him alone. You know, it was always going to take a hell of a story to justify breaking those rules properly because it is interesting you mentioned the Uncle Ben thing. I didn't know about that. I In my mind, Ben had never been, you know, brought back to life in any capacity. So, but it, it's almost like they took a half measure with that, if that's fair. It wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing. Well, again, it's like we were saying about House of M. It's just one of those things that happened that is not. <laughs> no talks about. I think it's like a silly. That's that's what makes this book so good. Stuff like that makes it like silly, inconsequential. Yeah. Whereas this is, you know, meaty. Uh, I suppose. Yeah, this this is... would have been so easy to screw up. So yeah, easy. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah. I mean, overall, I think 
wonderful art, you know, brilliant storytelling. It's it's interesting for me reading it um, because I think I have a different perspective, not a different perspective, but maybe a different experience of reading this for the first time than you guys because I had seen the movie and then read the book. You guys would have read the book and then watched the movie. So certain things like it being Bucky, for example, who was the Winter Soldier, um, sometimes it's hard to separate the two, I find. Um, you know, when I saw, like, Black Widow wasn't in this, and she's obviously such a massive part of the movie universe and that kind of thing. So it's interesting to read it the other way around because as comic fans, I would say 90% of what gets made into movies we have exposure to prior to the movie. Mm. So this was an interesting one for me in that I knew it was a classic. I love the creative team. I love the movie now i'll go back to the inspiration and and this is something we'll get into certainly later but it's certainly something keith and i chatted about quickly is like they're two massively different stories really are they really are they you know they've essentially they've literally taken out in this the idea of bucky being the winter soldier and that's almost it it's the bare bones isn't it it really is but i I mean Comic fans for a long time have always talked about how The Winter Soldier is one of the best comic adaptations of all time. It's not really an adaptation because it takes very minimal stuff from this. But we'll we'll get into that a little bit later anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we've got a lot of news in the story, but I think we'll just we'll just hit the beat, uh, really, because we've told a lot of the story and explaining who the characters were and uh, and then the overview. So. I mean, the story is divided into into two arcs with a single issue interlude. So, kicked off Captain America Volume Five, Number One to Six was the the first arc was titled Out of Time, uh, six issues. It was followed by the single issue interlude, The Lonesome Death of Jack Monroe, and then ended in a final arc entitled, uh, you know, the eponymously named uh, The Winter Soldier in issues eight and nine and eleven and fourteen. Uh, we already talked about that frustratingly placed number ten tie-in. So. Uh, we've already talked about the creators, so I mean the general the general gist of it is that we you know we kick off sort of five years ago, and and Skull the Red Skull is dealing with uh, with with Lucan uh, Alexander Lucan the uh, the ex KGB general, and he's selling a lot of uh, KGB developed weaponry that his uh, his uh, Vasily Korpov has left them with. Uh, there's a there's a moment with Red Guardian, which is kind of weird. Red Guardian is the like the Russian version of Captain America, and is actually the character who David Harbour will be playing in Black Widow. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a moment where he's a version of Red Guardian, and he's sort of he's trying to arrest Lucan, and Lucan effectively puts him down, but then eats his body and, and treats him respectfully. Uh, you know, after after gunning him down. So anyway, Skull, you know, and and going through these these weapons, spots this body in a tube, and we see the. We see the cybernetic hand, you know, and Skull's like, "I want that. How much? How much will you will you take for it?" And yeah, you know, looking as he's like, "Well, I will accept no less than the cosmic cube," which Skull doesn't have and wouldn't give up anyway. But uh, you know, it's just it's real economy of storytelling in those three or four pages. We meet the Red Skull and looking who we know will be, you know, paired up as the villains of this piece in a, in a very uh, significant way, and we also get our first look at. Uh, at the Winter Soldier, and we also get our first mention of the Cosmic Cube, which five years later, the Red Skull is is in possession of a of a Cosmic Cube. He's standing in a in a skyscraper in Manhattan, looking down over it. He's got this 
what I would describe as a Franken cube. It's a cube he's made himself from bits of other cosmic cubes that he previously held, and it it seems only to have enough power to hold itself together. And he has plans for it. And his plan, before it's interrupted, is to set off these devices in Paris and London and Manhattan, and to absorb the misery generated or the death energy generated by those explosions to power the cosmic cube back up to its full strength. But uh, that's interrupted, uh, as we know. Uh, Red Skull's plan is interrupted, but Skull is using uh, AID, AID, Advanced Ideas and Destruction, which is a group that spins off of uh, AIM, Advanced Ideas and Mechanics, led by, led by uh, Crossbones. So, but anyway, we've got all that going on. Uh, we meet Steve, and as, as Roddy's already said, you know, Cap seems he's, he's on edge and he's touchy and he's, you know, he, you know, Sharon, who is his handler at this time, or, or something close to it, you know, talks about this. He was dealing with terrorists last week in a train, and he was reckless and in a fantastic action scene. scene. Yeah, I mean, that, that scene leaps off the page. It really does. And the way he uses the shield, the way it bounces back to him, and it's fantastic. Well, really, that's, really that sequence in general, I just think, is worth talking about quickly in that we were talking a little bit about how Cap is a very old-fashioned hero who sees black and white, and Cap is like, yeah, you know, Sharon's basically saying to him, like, you know, you were reckless, you endangered lives, you did this, you did that, and he's like, look, I stopped a bomb going off at the end of the line and half of, you know, Manhattan being blown up. That's a good thing, but he he's not really looking at the grey areas of, you know, the destruction along the way and all this kind of thing, so I think it's a really interesting look at that that sequence alone is just a really interesting sort of summation of Cap's um, Cap's motivations and his ideals, uh, and well, just a brilliantly yeah. kick-ass sequence as well. Oh yeah, I was going to say you see at the end where he threatens the guy, and he's like he's almost pushing them a bit too far. Yeah, I, I think he says like I'm fairly certain I'd survive. How about you? Yeah, yeah, that's that's not Cap. That, that's and. Um, to me, what that said was, you know, so we know that as this issue progresses, Lucan is more and more manipulating Cap with the Cosmic Cube, you know, and mm-hmm. and and the Red Skull was doing it before Lucan was doing it, before it was charged up. So at this point, are we to assume that the Red Skull has been manipulating Cap even before the story has started? You know, why is that way he's so on edge? Is that way he's so touchy and, and even being a little bit violent, a little bit you know, it's an interesting, an interesting question, but, um, and even the way he's treating Sharon is a wee bit off the cuff, you know, a wee bit kind of yeah. odd, but, but anyway, um, so yeah, so, I mean, it, it becomes clear that Skull has, oh, that's the other thing, Steve's apartment's class. Oh, the, the hologram? Yeah, <laughs> just the, the, the hologram. I will say one thing about that, right, and, it's it's a great idea in theory, but the fact that no one has noticed this man just walking through a hologram before this seemingly homeless guy sees it, who is obviously looking, you know, spying on him. The fact that no one has seen this big, massive, burly man just disappear. <laughs> it's a great idea in theory, but I remember reading it going like, "Come on, this is this is a busy street in New York, surely." Well, um, I must just put his glasses on. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just assumed that, A, there's two things going on. 
Cabs is very well trained in espionage, and two, he was probably going around the corner before he was going through the. Well, this is true, but see, like the scene that it's set up where the home the homeless guy who, as I say, turns out to be looking is watching him. Like Steve doesn't even look back before he looks. He walks through the hologram. You know what I mean? Like if, but then again, maybe as you say, maybe he's overconfident or you know his mind's not fully on it. Maybe that's why. But I just remember, I think it's in the same panel. You see him walk through the hologram, and you see the side of the homeless man's face looking at him. And it's like, why would Steve, Steve would have noticed that guy there, surely? But, yeah, maybe. But then he's off his game. He's yeah, his well, game. that's that's fair. That's fair. But yeah, it just looks like a class apartment. It's, it's apartment. It looks nice and comfortable. It's all of World War Two stuff up. You know, he's punch bags and train racks. And, you know, it just looks like a cool spot. I wish Nick Fury would see me up with an apartment in Brooklyn. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, so... Anyway, the way it works, as we say, the Red Skull's keeping an eye on Steve anyway. And, uh, you know, at the end of the, the end of the first issue, uh, you know, Skull takes a, a call from, from Lucan. You know, it's the first time he's spoken to him in five years and Lucan's talking about the Cosmic Cube and Skull's like, well, I've got it right here in my hand, you know. It hardly has enough power to hold itself together. But, uh, you know, with that then, next thing there's a shot. And uh, Red Skull stops, and you know we see the we see the the blood spreading out, and then he just drops onto the ground. And uh, next thing, this this dark individual walks into the room, picks up the phone, and says, "Mission accomplished, General. The cube is yours." Uh, and you know it all just kicks off from there. You know we're introduced to the idea that Cap is having these these reveries, these dreams or memories that that are not accurate to what we know and what he remembers. You know about about times and uh, you know the past times that have passed. You know when his relationship with Bucky and some things that have you know it's like nearly like a PTSD sort of a thing, but it's mm-hmm. just not. You know he he starts to have trouble telling the difference between his mind, his, his memories, and his, his dreams. And I mean that's got off his game as well. He's not sleeping because of this, and and uh, you know we know that that's because he's been manipulated by the by the cube. He's been he's been put into this position, but. It really is. It's really kind of weird, um, and uh, something that that I noticed even just tonight when I was rereading, is that there's there's two kinds of flashbacks throughout this book. There are black and white flashbacks and coloured flashbacks. Uh, you know, both drawn by both drawn by Michael Lark. But yeah, it makes me wonder: are those black and white flashbacks? Are those the manipulated memories and dreams and reveries that that he's experiencing and may or may not be false or maybe part false and then there's the the colored ones like where he, where he remembers back to the russian front in 1940 and the battle with skull and masterman is all colored rather than black and white so happening as it happened you know it's i don't know i think it's an interesting subtle storytelling yeah exactly that exactly that so anyway um i mean cap goes up to the helicarrier, he's summoned up to the helicarrier, we see Fury for the first time and um, he identifies Red Skull's body and you're reminded that there's a lot of Captain America deep cuts here, you're reminded that, that the Red Skull, his body is a, is a clone of Steve's, so they take a like a swab of Steve's DNA to compare it, to make sure that this is the Red Skull's body and uh, you know, then there's a there's a whole sequence that you know, where, where Steve and Sharon are tracking down the, the aid guys you know, who are planting these bombs and they have the first, you know, they, they track down the one under Manhattan and on the helicarrier, you've got these muted colours, you know, that are kind of, as you say, noir Alan, you know, kind of mm. a wee bit dark and then the sewers, whenever they're down there, it's there's like a red tinge to everything and then 
you these black and white flashbacks and just the, just the the action as well is amazing even down the sewers and he's saying on the train just caps physicality and the use of the shield and it's all effortless even if he is sometimes making the wrong moves so um, and then you know we take it to London and we've got Union Jack and the SAS trying to take out the bomb in London and what goes wrong there and they discover then the body of, of Mother Knight who's a, a like a a hench person of the Red Skull so there's the link to the skull and there's unidentified there's this unidentified dead soldier and then we're 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 hopping over to Paris and you know we're trying to take out the bomb there and Cap's been really reckless and Sharon is kind of you know, berating them for it and, and that, and there's property damage, and we start to see an increase in, in Cap's reveries, you know, these these memories and dreams that he's having, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the issue ends with Pennsylvania and the the, the lonesome death of, of, of Jack Monroe as, as he's sort of pulled out of a bar and shot in the back of the head and bundled into the, 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 uh, the, the boot of his car, the trunk of his car, on top of his nomad costume, and that's addressed just a wee bit later in that issue seven. So we're introduced to uh, to looking again for the first time. This is the first time we see him again, and in a wee while, and uh, he's him and his, his he's now set himself up as the CEO of Kronos Corporation. You know, five or six years later, he's a successful corporation named after the village in which he was born. He's got his his, his aide Leon, who is the guy who the Cosmic Cube or, or the Red Skull eventually hurt, and they're pulling up outside Roxxon. Roxxon is like the big evil corporation of the Marvel Universe, you know, always up to no good. And it's clear that, that Lucan has designs of using the cube that he's now acquired in order to manipulate Roxxon and, and, and buy that corporation out or add it to his his um, his, his portfolio. Um, we've got, you know, Cap, Cap, you know, Fury gets in touch with Cap and tells him there's a thing that has happened and that thing is that the graves of, of William Naceland and Jeffrey Mace have been destroyed at Arlington. Those two individuals are two people who served as Captain America before. Uh, William Naceland was a spurt of 76, and he served as, as Cap and uh, was involved in the in protecting Kennedy, I think. Uh, had, one of the Kennedys against an assassination. Jeffrey Mace was the patriot, the hero who served at home, and then eventually uh, replaced Cap whenever you know he was off the, off the whenever Cap was still in the ice. Um, so these graves have been desecrated, which is a clear shot at Cap. And it makes you wonder, is it, did it you know, was it Winter Soldier that did it? You know, because Jeff Mace was a was a friend of Bucky's at the time, you know. But anyway, all, you know, we, we discover that, that Jack Monroe's prints are on the weapon that killed the skull, left behind for someone to find, you know. So there's a whole lot of game playing going on, you know. Sharon's sent out to track down Monroe, but is captured by the Winter Soldier. Cap's attacked by crossbones. And absolutely flubs the fight because of his these reveries that have been pushed into his mind and his, his recollections that have been forced to watch. It's really, Bucky it's really interesting at that point because at the start they are like one one page of black and white, two pages of black and white, but at this point it's now just like flashing. Yeah. In between, you get, yeah. you'll get like a modern day panel, then you'll get a flashback, and then it just. It's like a flickering image almost. And just it's, bills and bills and bills, and he's more disturbed really at this point. And he's just yeah. he's not on it. It's uh it's great, Ronnie, actually that because in the same way as that keeps it's really disorienting to read, but it sort of mimics how disoriented that must feel. Yeah. yeah you know? So it's a real good it's a real good use of whatever, you know, but it's a it's a fairly brutal fight as well. And just to see Cap 
crossbones walks away and goes, you're pathetic. I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to kill you now. I could kill you now, but I'm not going to kill you now because you're too pathetic. Is that, is that something that would be within his character? Because I always thought Crossbone was just like this mercenary for hire almost. I didn't realize Crossbone sort of had so much honor of, well, if I can't beat you when you're at your best, I, I, I just don't want to beat you. Well, I mean, he's, he's arrogant. You know, he's an arrogant prick as well, you know, mm -hmm. and he has, that's what he wants to do. He wants to beat Cap, but he doesn't want to beat Cap whenever he's not on his game like, you know. So I don't know if it's honor or, or just... Honor might be the wrong word. Arrogance. Um, arrogance. Something. Yeah, something along those lines. But, but yeah. So there, there's that. There's that moment as well. You know. And then you could, you know, Fury links this dead soldier in London to this network of former Soviet mercs and to, to Lukin and the Kronos Corporation. And you know, Cap then recognizes the name of Karpov and Kronos, which is the village that they were in on the Russian front in the forties that was destroyed in that battle. So this entire issue then it becomes a flashback in color, back to that time where the invaders invaded that that village and fought Masterman and the Red Skull and you know at this time at this point you know Fury is starting to cotton on to what's going on and he's he's heard of the Winter Soldier before and he pulls the file and Fury has realized at this stage that oh my god is this what's happened is is the Winter Soldier Bucky and you know he makes a point of saying he wants to be a hundred percent sure before he destroys Cap's world so Cap finds himself, you know, trying to figure out his recollections. He finds himself at the old castle in the English Channel where the drone plane took off before he and Bucky, you know, he was thrown into the into the deep freeze into the channel and, and Bucky was, was partly killed, you know, and he's doubting his own memories of that event. And he, he fights these phantoms of Zemo and his men and he ends up finding himself overlooking that parapet where that fateful moment took place. And in his, in his memory, he suddenly realizes that it wasn't that Bucky didn't let go, it's that he couldn't let go, that he was stuck on the plane. And this, you know, just tortures Steve, you know, so that, you know, Steve kind of now realises that he's been manipulated by the cube, that, you know, and, and the skull and, and looking maybe, and, and that maybe the, the cube wasn't weak enough to to give Cap back his memories of that time, but, you know, we're, we're, th we're thinking about the reliability of memory and stuff, you know, but it was enough to just give him back enough of his past to torture him, you know, so... At this point, you know, Sharon's captured. Steve rushes back to Philadelphia, having been given a vision of her being captured, and he ends up right in the sights of the Winter Soldier. Just as, as the Skull's device under Philadelphia is triggered by the Winter Soldier, it kills this agent, Neil Tapper, who Sharon had been seeing. It destroys Jack Monroe's body, and it charges up Lucan's cosmic cube full of death energy, and it's now it's now completely, completely full. So, um, and, you know, it... Steve's been manipulated to be right where he wanted and we get the first view of the Winter Soldier, the first full view of the, the Winter Soldier, this you know, long-haired individual, the cybernetic arm with the red Soviet star on it and you know the what what's really interesting is you know, despite, we're seeing Bucky, we're seeing Bucky and the way he's, he is now, the way he's changed to the, to the character he is now, but one thing's really interesting is he's still wearing a domino mask, the Winter Soldier wears a domino mask, Bucky wore a domino mask just think that's kind of it's kind of significant you know it's, uh, it's a it's significant cool. thing for the reader i think more so is it rather than him it's maybe to draw your attention to it to know Ooh. but um maybe not a conscientious choice by bucky i don't know yeah yeah i mean it could be that it could be it was given to him by his handlers you know uh, or whatever so you know the 
the issue seven then that's where they have the interlude and that's the the death of you know after this explosion and, and it could have been charged up and we've seen winter soldier for the first time we have this interlude and we we see the tragic lead up to jack monroe's death at the hands of his former hero i mean he worshipped bucky the original bucky to the point that he took on his role and you know that and he's he's been hunted by by psychotic episodes and mental illness and it's just it's really it's really a really tragic story jane foster features from thor um and that and it's really he's tying up his loose ends and he doesn't realize that his psychosis has returned and he's he's, he's going on one last mission to protect his daughter his, his, his or his, his adopted daughter or the, the the daughter that he girl that he took off the, the drug dealer back in the day you know and he's trying to protect her and he thinks he's beating up drug dealers but he's not he's beating up innocent people it's just all in his mind and then you know the winter soldier comes along you know and, and, and assassinates him and, and kills him in order to set him up as a patsy and and leave a track for steve you know and, to, and a reason to capture john but he's just a patsy through this whole thing and he it's just it's it's really really tragic you know i'm thinking he's a hero and he's not and i'm thinking this is his last run it's not and just to and be bundled into the back of a car and, and killed by the man who was his hero i just thought was a real touching tragic moment you know uh it really was but uh i thought but, there was i thought there was some fun writing in this as well i should say just where he thinks that this guy's going around as a drug dealer selling drugs to kids and then it turns out he's an ice cream van and in yeah. a sense he is a drug dealer for kids you know he's he's getting out of the van and you know, one of his friends says to him, oh, you still driving this damn ice cream truck? And he goes, got to pay the the bills, pal, and the kids eat this shit up. Get a fudgicle yeah. in their little hands and you got a customer for life. So in a, in a weird sort of way, although a much more legal way, uh, he is selling <laughs> yeah, yeah. drugs to the kids. Yeah, yeah. So there's a bit of, bit of fun with it, you know? Yeah, big style, big style. I mean, it's, it's, it's well put together. It's a completely different here and here and here. And, and Fury starts to build up the story for Steve as to, as to who the Winter Soldier is or was and the things he's been involved in. And, you know, we trying to figure out why he never gets older, really, or he only edges at a very, very slow rate. We know it's because he's, he's constantly, as in the movie, he's taken out of deep freeze whenever he's needed for a mission and he's let out for six months and then he's put back into deep freeze, you know. We see the, we see the, the fallout from the, the, the bomb in Philadelphia and Steve taking on uh, EM soldiers and, and, uh, and, and some great combat, and then the Winter Soldier appears again, uh, again interposed with just finding out more and more about the about the Winter Soldier and his impact on the Cold War and the things he's done, um, and and all of that. And uh, so it's just you know, and then we 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 have like a lot of great flashbacks to 1945 again, the black and white stuff, and we see. You know Vas- Vasily Karpov on a on a Russian submarine and taking it into the English Channel illegally near the Channel Islands and picking up Bucky's body, you know minus his minus his left arm, uh, you know, and they revive him through technology and uh, they reattach his arm and all of that sort of stuff and then they, they brainwash him and uh, you know it's just it's it's kind of that's kind of the, the crux of it until we work up to the you know it's just it's real espionage, real noir sort of stuff, but. But in the second arc, I think Cap's very much more on the on the attack. He's much more in the front mm-hmm. foot, would you reckon, Roddy, than he was in the in the first arc? Yeah, I think so because there's a really great his relationship with Fury is really interesting in this as well, because there's maybe a little parallel to the film as well, where he doesn't 
I don't know if he really trusts uh, Fury at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he sort of feels like he's he's almost a pawn in this. Like Fury held held this information that he was Bucky back. Like Fury had suspicions, didn't even tell him. Um, but yeah, it's obviously a more don't want to say a detective, Steve, but he certainly he has been pushed now, so he has to he is fighting back, definitely. Yeah, I mean, big style. I mean, there's a they do they do do a raid on the you know Fury puts together an illegal raid with Charlie Stevens, two legends, on on Kronos Corporation's headquarters, but you know it's just aborted because obviously again they're being manipulated because they they go and they, they make this raid and it. The the the, flip, the the American the U.S. Secretary of State and defense is in this meeting and it just goes badly and they end yeah. up you know just not not good at all. But you know we start to learn you know the Winter Soldier file is left is left for Steve and we learn there's, there's just a great we learn of the Winter Soldier's origin we learn about you know through the Doctor's notes what happened and how they worked on him and and a, and a great sequence and how they made him into the into the Winter Soldier and. Karpov remembering seeing Bucky at work back in the Russian front in the 40s and all of this stuff is just class and then um, issue 11 is one of my favorite ones because the uh the panel structure if there even is a panel structure you could say is so unique and inventive um you do start you get a few bits of it's where Captain America receives the confidential Winter Soldier project file yeah and he opens it and you know he sees the doctor's note but it's all they're all just like sort of memories blended together um with little the letterings just like little light takes of the um the confidential files and there's just like little snapshots but they're all like blended together it's really inventive um comic book storytelling which i really loved and um the frank diartama on the colors as well he's just fantastic Um, I love that was one of my favorite issues, and then obviously towards the end, Cap's just distraught, broken at yeah, this, and then yeah. he's he's got, he says to Sharon, "There's something you need to see." Some scenes that nearly absolutely are uh, are just lifted straight from the comic into the movie, you know, where they're brainwashing him with the device and and all sorts of stuff. It's kind of cool, and uh, there's the link with the Red Room, which is where. Uh, where, where Black Widow was was created, you know. But then later on, you know, we get into the fifties and the and the, and into the seventies later. And the, there there are a couple of incidences where the Winter Soldier, after a mission, rather than coming back to his handler, ends up going off grid, you know, and traveling across the country. You know, the handlers waited, but he didn't come back. He he failed to appear as an extraction point. And then I was I was the same as Cap. Whenever I was reading this, I was going, "This is Bucky. This is Bucky reasserting his." As, as you know, as as control, you know, and that, but uh, but yeah, it's kind of interesting. Takes it, you know, eventually they reacquire him, and up in the eighties, the then uh, Karpov takes him as a as a personal bodyguard, um, and that, and then eventually in nineteen eighty eight, he ends up after Karpov's death, Winter Soldier's decommissioned. He ends up, you know, in in stasis, you know, and is placed alongside in an undisclosed location alongside much of Department X abandoned experiments. The next thing, of course, we'll see him is whenever Lucan is trying to sell off these abandoned experiments to the Red Skull. So it's just, oh man, it's just fantastic. Uh, just a great, a great issue. And then 
uh, 12 comes around, you know, we've, we've had uh, looking, uh, you know, is getting increasingly, you know, has, he's increasingly losing control to the cube, losing control to the red skull. We've now found out the red skull is in his head. He, he badly beats one of his, his closest friends, uh, Leon, and, and at that point he sends the cube away and, and that, and then we, we, we get down to, you know, looking up to some real badness with the cube as the, as the, the skull starts to take over a wee bit more and, uh, and we just get closer and closer and the net starts to close and the Winter Soldier, uh, Falcon makes his, makes his entrance and, uh, and we start, to, you know, we start, the, we start to reach the, not to, not to take the title of a different movie, but we start to reach the end game um, as the, the Winter Soldier is, is, is asked by a guilty looking to, to take the cosmic cube and hide it and bury it now that his work with it's done and Cap is the Winter Soldier. It's just, as Iron Man becomes involved, as I'm sure you're, you were happy to see, Alan, and, and uh, as I say, we just they don't want to take it right up. But yeah, it's just a, it's just a fantastic, uh, a fantastic uh, second arc and, and an ending. And of course, the crux of it is that Cap, Cap gets a hold of the Cosmic Cube and uses it to remind Bucky who he is to, to break the brainwashing. And this is something that Brubaker has been very has been very clear on that he didn't use it. He didn't use the cosmic cube to replace the winter soldier's memories with Bucky's memories. He, you know, he didn't take away the pain. He didn't take away the guilt. He just, he broke the brainwashing and allowed Bucky the strength to, to break through the brainwashing. Um, and the, you know, the scenes you see there are just, are just great. And then, uh, you know, it ends, it ends with, uh, I guess with, with Bucky taking the cosmic cube. And I don't know if he was trying to, kill himself with it he was trying to end himself but the cube ends up you know taking him away and teleporting him away and we see him we see bucky there on the uh on the the ruins of camp lahaye the place where he first met steve um you know and, and and nursing his mind and nursing his you know not nursing his guilt uh and that so such a such a such a rom such a book how, how do you follow that up <laughs> 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 you know so so yeah uh, it was just it was really it was really something but there's there was there was a bunch of stuff i guess that we, we pulled out here that was that were you know some themes and stuff we were really interested in but what were the what were the high points for you guys the book definitely that uh definitely issue 11 for me uh, like it's rare because you get you get an origin story and um we our generation are not used to origin story maybe we are in the cinema i guess we always got like origin stories for the past i don't know 10 years or whatever but getting to see the creation of this character you know obviously existed before was really exciting um i loved how they i loved the action scenes and i loved just loved how it feels so grounded but it's obviously not grounded at all because it's about cosmic cubes and, and all this and shield and all this sort of stuff it's really really interesting stuff um for me i really enjoyed i love the um and maybe it's something you see in the movie slightly more i love the um the the sort of military aspect of both captain america and bucky and how they're sort of very much the same but also very much different as well you know obviously you may be getting more of the winter soldiers guilt towards the end um you know he's starting to realize all these 
horrible things that he's done. And Captain's very much... Uh, he has the same issues, but he sort of deals with it in a different way. And I think um, that's a really exciting thing. Especially it comes up in the movie. I really enjoyed that. But yeah, just a fantastic book. A lot of really great and unique ideas. It's interesting to read it certainly as a counterpoint to the movie because, and again, maybe this is something maybe you can incorporate into movies a bit more, but the character certainly in the movie of the winter soldier is a bit more likable than the character presented here like there's no clear resolution for bucky here the way i would think that they they explore it in the movies i mean certainly at the at, in the final scene or the final couple of scenes he's still trying to kill steve the whole way through it and steve is saying several times like remember who you are remember who you are and there's no semblance that his previous life is going to break through in his mind it's you know steve has to use the cube to basically say remember who you are i mean even like steve sits down on his knees and holds the shield out and says like if you really don't remember anything just just kill me and he tries to <laughs> it's only because steve dodges him and like the winter soldier even says out loud dodged my hey no you know so he was still trying to kill him at this point so there's he's a lot less of a well maybe it's not less of a likable character because You've got the origin of him and you can see how badly he's been mistreated and programmed and all that kind of stuff. But there didn't seem to be a semblance of hope for Winter Soldier at the end of the book, I think. Obviously, we know better in, you know, with hindsight. But I know they put him back to where he was trained and stuff like that. But there's there's not a lot of semblance of hope in this book, you know. There's, there's not a lot of redemption for there's no redemption for the Winter Soldier this is this is part of the winter soldier's mm -hmm. story uh, as a hero this is this is the moment that you know that his journey begins i guess in a way uh it's and, and in some ways that at the end of the winter soldier movie that kind of is the same as you know his his journey the redemption has begun you know and, and that's what finds the character in the marvel universe mm -hmm. really i think is that is that trying to redeem himself from what he's done you know from the things that he, he did you know it's uh yeah, yeah, but I see your point, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but certainly with this book, it's just, it's one of those sort of perfect storms, as we sort of chatted about a little bit before. I mean, when you get a creative team, you know, at the absolute top of their game, it's 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 a superhero book at its base level, but there's so much more depth to it. There's so, so many nuances to it, to the storytelling and with the themes being explored and so forth. And I, I did get a very different appreciation for it certainly the second time i read it and the third time i read it um and it's not often you say that about a superhero book superhero books sometimes can be a lot of gloss and a lot of fun but not necessarily a lot of depth um yeah and this yeah. is definitely one that you would hand to someone who if you wanted to say to them not grown-up storytelling i suppose but to give someone something and say look there's depth to this this superhero stuff this would be one of the the first examples I think you would give them. So, um, well, yeah, thoroughly, thoroughly excellent book. Bucky, in whatever nineteen forty five, he was being read by teenagers, whereas now, you know, the Winter Soldier is probably maybe being read by people in their twenties to forties. You know, with that's a wild sort of guess, but it's. It's maybe showing the more grown-up aspect of these superhero stories. Um, Bucky has been brought 
back for a more modern audience and certainly there's loads of stuff for me that sort of really don't want to say enjoyed but i really i liked the portrayal and the they sort of delve into the mental health of soldiers which i really find fascinating i find bucky fascinating and certainly the title uh the winter soldier kind of sent bells ringing in my head i was like um don't know if you guys have heard of it but there was a it's called the winter soldier investigations um which was sort of like an event um for war veterans who came back from vietnam and it was sort of um to do with the publicize the war crimes involved in vietnam and the soldiers sort of retaliating against the governments and certainly it's really interesting stuff and the winter soldier i think it's the winter soldier and certainly john kerry was really heavily involved um he was what was it 2004 he was um yeah. running for president against george yeah. bush um there's a really great great film about him that this is that's where i sort of first heard of the winter soldier investigations uh called going up river which he john kerry went to vietnam he came back and he was a i think he was a key member of those investigations if i'm uh, right in thinking about it from what i understand and um, i mean uh, it's just something that i was i picked up on after you mentioned it ronnie was those that, that movement that uh you know work that was done between those vets and the civilians and, and that, that the Winter Soldier investigations that was kind of the start of his career, his political career. Yeah, really. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly. kind of interesting, you know, and um, that it's kind of interesting because uh, I think, as I mentioned earlier on, it sort of reading it sort of put me in the mind of uh, First Blood, you know, oh, the, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Rambo movie, the, the first of those films, like, yeah, Deer uh, uh, Hunter uh, as well, yeah, yeah. so uh, there's that. You know, and, and there's there's something to be said about the way America, and not just America, probably everywhere. You know, a lot of Western countries treat their their veterans. You know, there's there's definitely something of that in there. Yeah. Oh, he's. I I really don't think he's called the Winter Soldier by accident. No, I don't it's, think so. I think it's by design. It's he's called that. And, and maybe there's he is a representation of the the wrongs about the american military i don't know maybe certainly for us as like three northern irish men you know if americans americans don't know how deeply ingrained the troubles is for us much as we don't know how much vietnam that generation it's that war is so ingrained on the american psyche you know we don't really we have an understanding but i don't think we really know so i do i do think there's something there's something about that and obviously captain america represents the um how would you say the sort of he was the you know the rah-rah poster guy of america yeah. you know but now he's he's mature he's different he he has his own take on the war he doesn't you know he doesn't trust shield you know like he sort of suspicious of his own handlers and his own military which is really interesting as well yeah i mean it's interesting as well you link that back to the movie as well because obviously whenever steve meets uh sam falcon he is working in a in a, in a vet's clinic you know in a, a support in a, group yeah support group you know and and you see you see steve doing something very very similar in uh in endgame actually uh picking mm -hmm. up where, where falcon left off um 
So that's kind of that's kind of interesting, you know. And it's definitely a case that the Bucky story is 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 about violence and it's about following orders and it's about post traumatic stress disorder, you know. And even after this, whenever whenever Bucky is back in control of his own mind, it was it was his body and his face and his skills that were doing the killing, you know. And it was him who saw those lives end at his own hand and. You know, that's whenever you start talking about that, you know, that post-traumatic stress and that that damage, you know, that mental damage, and and the character he's he's emotionally vulnerable later on. He's a he's all grief and anger and deadly efficiency, uh, and he's here to stay. You know, and that, you know at the end uh, there's a the big story that had nothing to do with with Bucky. Steve Rogers gets killed, killed, and soon after Bucky reluctantly takes off the shield and becomes the new Captain America. And at that time, he struggles to live up to that role and continues to continues to try and, and gain redemption through that, you know, for all the people he killed and and that. But then he feels guilty about the fact that it all feels so comfortable, you know, the the espionage and the spying and the killing, you know, and that's his. It's it's, it's really really mad stuff. Like really, it's, it's all ingrained in the story. Like I think, but I think part of that maybe comes from uh, Ed Brubaker was a. Was a navy, a navy brat, you know. He his dad was a navy intelligence officer, and he grew up. He spent his childhood in Guantanamo Bay, not oh, prison, wow. but yeah. actually the, the the military base. So, and what what Ed Brubaker said about about Bucky was that, that Ed was a navy brat and Bucky was an army brat, and he he'd assumed that there was some kind of long dramatic. So this so. You know, Ed Brubaker was one of these kids that Bucky was made for. He was the point, Bucky was his point of view character. He was the character he related to, you know. So he had assumed that there was some long dramatic story in which Bucky had been killed off, off and it just hadn't been dug up yet. And then he learned that, you know, this, this story was tossed off in a single page in Avengers number four when he was nine years old. <laughs> he was absolutely horrified. And he says he was a really creative child and he, he didn't take this lying down. And if Bucky had been killed without much ceremony, he felt it would be correct him for him to resurrect him and let him have his day and from the time he was nine or ten years old he was in his sketchbooks plotting ways to bring Bucky back and you know one solution was to mix him, mix him up with Cold War intrigue because I guess at that time it was the mid 70s and the Cold War was starting to you know um, you know so this, the, the idea that Ed Brubaker came up with this idea or this thought whenever he was nine or ten is kind of mind blow <laughs> took him 30 years but he did it <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, you know. And uh, he uh, he says that even when he was a kid, he must have had a good sense of dramatic structure because he partly knew that taking away the death of Bucky, which was Cap's biggest tragedy, by resurrecting Bucky meant that he would have to replace it with another huge tragedy. Otherwise, he would lose that toy to play with as a, as a writer, you know. So, you know, he's, he said, you know, obviously, I think there was, there was a wee bit of going around at the time in the, in the early 2000s. At Marvel, where, where someone had suggested reviving Bucky, you know, and Tom Brevard, who was the the editor of Captain America, says a previous creative team had pitched the idea of bringing Bucky back, but Brevard was he was dead set against it, and uh, you know there was a lot of conversation. I think with Joe Casada, they discussed it and they got more and more got louder and more impassioned, and uh, and and all of that until they were yelling at each other about. Resurrecting Bucky, <laughs> so that story didn't end up going forward, but it held some appeal for for Casada, and so uh, he brought it up when he was speaking to Ed, and apparently Brubaker had to 
like run the gauntlet of of Brevoort's skepticism whenever he whenever he uh, he, he pitched the story. You know, how did Bucky survive the the explosion of the little plane? You know, and Bree Baker said he'd fallen in the water. He was grievously injured. He'd missing his arm. He suffered from amnesia. He's rescued by a Russian officer who subsequently used him as a black ops assassin. And why can't he remember what happened to him? And Bree Baker proposed that every time Bucky started getting inklings of his past life, the Russians put him back in suspended animation and re-brainwashed him, as was the case in the movie as well. You know, and that also answered the question as to why Bucky wasn't an old man. And the whenever he was brought back in two thousand four, so <laughs> so Tom Brevoort recalls that. He had a total of fourteen questions that uh, that Brubaker had to had to answer in order to take his approach. But this guy had been thinking about this since he was ten years old, so there you go. <laughs> a ten-year-old's master plan to reinvent Marvel in the mid two thousands. This little nine-year-old sitting there going, you know, in thirty years' time, I'm going to make something of myself. What do you see? Yeah, you know, <laughs> and it's 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 kind of funny because I think my favorite part of the book. Is the way it's the way it's done in the modern day and with the flashbacks. I just love that because it it really, you know, the, the first arc was called Out of Time, you know, and there's there's maybe two ways of taking that: Out of Time, as in you're running out of time, or Out of Time, as in Cap is a man out of time, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think that that's. But I think I think that man out of time story. I think the way the way this story unravels unwraps. You very much get Cap in the modern day, and you also get him in World War Two, so you get that man out of the time sort of feeling, you know. So I think, and I think, you know, just that the, the whole flashback, the whole the whole idea of the flashbacks, you know. And we originally learned that Bucky had died, you know, in a flashback in Avengers Four. The first thing that Captain America says whenever he wakes up out of the ice is, "Bucky, Bucky, look out!" You know, almost as if he's picking his memory up exactly where he left it you know whenever he was frozen he's still seeing bucky you know and then bucky's second origin as the winter soldier is also told as a flashback which i thought was quite poetic you know um a lot of the stories told through flashback a lot of the base of the stories made through flashback and these reveries and the caps having the shock and revelation about bucky and um you know and i just i loved that moment i think it was one of my favorite things that that revelation that although bucky all this time, you know, up until now, we'd always heard that Bucky was a mascot, and you know, and then to find out that he was sent out to viciously execute enemy soldiers as an advanced scout during attacks, you know, and he, he was, this was the youthful pride of America, you know, that's there's something to be said there as well. So, <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, there's some there's some real, some real awesome stuff going on, I think. Um, anything else that's jumping out at you? Uh, nothing for myself. Um, pretty comprehensive deep dive in to say i mean there was something that was just rattling around my brain there and i'm I'm trying to think of the best way to sort of get the point across but i almost wonder if uh, maybe this is looking way too deep into this but i almost wonder if the creation of bucky is almost like there's parallels between that and the idea of people developing weapons of mass destruction and what i mean by that is as mankind strives to create these horrible weapons that can be used against other people, what happens if they fall into your enemy's hands? And this idea that America have trained this guy to the absolute you know, peak of physical perfection, like an absolute perfect soldier almost, and then they lose him, so to speak, 
and someone else is able to take that you know rough weapon and refine it and then use it as a weapon against the original creator, if that makes sense. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's maybe looking a bit too deep into, it, but no, just there was a thought just sort of rattling around my head. It's it's all about that idea of you know someone taking your own weapon and using it against you, and you know that's how they seek to break cap as well because not only do they want to use the Winter Soldier to take out these political targets and you know gain advantages for their countries and stuff, but they can also use them to destroy. The last great hope of America, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. But again, maybe looking way too deep into it, but just the sort of rattling around the brain there. That's what we're here for. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, what about the movie, Alan? Well, I mean, I thought this would be a really good. Um, I mean, originally, as as was said earlier, I came up with this idea to sort of compare the graphic, the the original source material to the movie, and then I rewatched the movie <laughs> and read this. And realized, you know, how far apart they are. Certainly not in terms of quality. Certainly not in terms of, you know, thematic strength and execution. But, you know, any anyone who's listened to this podcast, they may have heard us chat about the book in real deep dives. And they may have sort of thought, I don't remember that in the movie. And there's a reason for that. They're very, very different. But if we were to take the movie on its own merits, you know, if we, we set the book to the side for the moment, I mean... Anyone who who knows me knows that Winter Soldier is, for me, the peak of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It is when, and I say this at a time where it's come after the Avengers as well, but for me it's, it's where the Marvel Universe just suddenly had this confident stride about it that said, trust us, you're in good hands. This was the first movie that started sort of setting that all up. Um... I mean, I think it's important to say, to look at the creative team. Just as we look at the creative team for the book, I think it's important to look at the creative team for the movies. And if you substitute Brubaker's writing for the screenwriters, Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, and you substitute Steve Epstein and you know Michael Lark for the Russos as your directors, um, the Russos were an interesting choice for this. Uh, the Russos now are pretty much Hollywood royalty. You know, they if you, if you think about it, they've overseen the most successful movie of all time now with Endgame. Uh, they have various TV projects they produce. Their name is typically associated with quality, but when they came on to this, they were, they were essentially TV comedy directors. I mean, one of my favorite shows of all time is Arrested Development. Arrested Development is a far cry away from a mar- major Marvel movie. Uh, but what it did no show... Touching. No touching her. Um, but uh, what's interesting is apparently I remember reading an interview with Kevin Feige and why he approached the Russos for this, and it makes complete and utter sense. What they showed with the rest of development, and to a lesser extent, because I'm not as familiar with it, but with community, was that they could juggle a diverse and varied cast. And that's essentially what you're doing with Marvel movies. You're positioning different pieces that will pay off at a much later stage. But you've got to have the confidence to set those different characters and different themes and different pieces up in the first place. And that's what they did in Winter Soldier. That There's so much set up in this movie that was so carefully done. You wouldn't even have noticed it then. But then in later movies, it would pay off and you'd just be sort of like, ah, oh, that is clever. That is good writing, good directing, <laughs> good everything. Um, so yeah, so... Uh, I would go a wee bit earlier even, Alan. I think there was a lot, there was some setup in 
Captain America, the first Avenger for this, mm-hmm. that I, I, re- I remember thinking at the time, because obviously uh, the first Avenger was what, 2000, what was it? What year was the first Oh, 2009, Avenger? I want to say. Yeah. And obviously, so this is five years. 2011. Oh, was it later than that? Eleven? Jeez. Yeah. yeah. Seven years after the after the Winter Soldier um, book, and I remember the significance of Bucky and and the first Avenger. And there was two things that stuck out to me: was whenever uh, the battalion were captured, and you remember Steve went and found Bucky, and he was he was tied down to a table. He'd been experimented on. Yeah. So he'd been experimented. I thought he's been experimented on. There's, this is this is interesting. This is interesting. And then uh, after that, whenever they did the mission on the train, just before Bucky drops into the canyon, uh, they're they're fighting on board the train, and uh, and it was just it was just a wee fan, just a fan service moment. It absolutely was. But they're fighting this guy. Cap can't get the angle on him, so he throws the shield, and, and Bucky catches the shield and was wielding the shield. And I was like, oh, oh, oh that's that's fantastic, you know. <laughs> now they broke my heart on Endgame. Uh, really give it Sam, but but, uh, but uh, just I thought that moment where he was experimented on, I thought this this is what's going to allow him to survive. The experiments that the Red Skull have done are going to allow him to survive whenever whenever he drops into this crevasse and he'll, he'll be coming back as a Winter Soldier. I knew in the first one that he was going to be coming back as a Winter Soldier. I was nearly sure of it. <laughs> to be honest, that's something I only noticed on rewatching of First Avenger because. Bucky's separated from the rest of the platoon when they've been captured, but yeah. because you don't, they never. It's it's subtle storytelling. They don't specifically show you him being experimented on, but he's lying on top of a, a table, and he's yeah. groggy, and there there's maybe instruments in the background and stuff like that. But it's not like Steve outright says, "Oh my God, they've been experimenting on you." So it was quite subtle storytelling. Um, I the first time, maybe even the first couple of times I watched it, I just thought. He was next in line to be killed, and that's why he was there. But you know, obviously, you know, later on, there's, there's, there's bigger setup and, and payoff there. Um, but yeah, I know, I know you had mentioned about, um, you know, I, I focus on the directors a lot, you know, and and obviously what the Russos have done for the Marvel universe. But I think it was, it was more you guys were maybe chatting about the contribution for Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely. Um, you know, they wrote all three Captain America movies. To a lesser extent, they wrote Thor The Dark World. We'll not talk too much about that. Uh, but then, obviously, they wrote Infinity War and Endgame. And it's interesting because I remember when I was trying to put together a watch list for people in the store before Infinity War came out. You know, what a lot of us big fans did. We watched everything, you know, because just leading up to it. But when you break it down, you could almost just watch the Russo Brothers movies. And in a weird way, that universe would make sense. Um, but yeah, certainly with these guys, it's, you can't underestimate their, uh, their additions to it as well. Um, but as I was saying about directors and stuff, I mean, Marvel very early on, the, the, you know, they were always interested with their director choices. I mean, obviously you look at someone like John Favreau now and you see what he's able to do with producing the Mandalorian and, you know, what he's able to set up there. He's, he's a dab hand at it. But when he took Iron Man, he was the guy that directed Swingers and, he was money and he didn't even know it. He was money and he didn't even know it. That was good. <laughs> that was good. You're money and you don't even know it. Um, no, that's, that's, that's a. Uh, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say that's. Um, 
I find some of my favorite Marvel movies are these genre pictures, you know, like like you're saying about early directors, like Kenneth Kenneth Branagh in Thor, you know, like um, and yeah, that still amazes me. Joe Joe Johnson doing uh, Captain America, First Avenger, First Avenger yeah. made of like this kind of Saturday morning cartoon, but like with a lot of hearts, you know, something something like the Rocketeer, kind of that sort of nostalgic little really trip. And there. then it's it's the same with like that sort of vibe carries over to like Ant-Man and Ant-Man at the Wasp. But it's, it's this one where I think they just nailed the formula. They they picked from like cinema past. Um, they didn't just try to make comic book movie. They were influenced and they picked up pieces um, like from... 70s spy thrillers we list them all day but certainly feels very this feels very like one of those films but they've just put comic book elements in it and it just works it works so well it wasn't just it wasn't just a good marvel universe movie it was a good movie it was just a great movie like it was you know, separate, separate, and, and, and aside, you know, so many great moments and great scenes. But anyway, sorry, Al. No, not at all, not at all. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll just build on what you guys are saying. I mean, they they knocked it out of the park because I think the best, the best, certainly the best superhero movies are not just ones that are, as you say, great superhero movies. They're just great movies. Uh, you know, with this one, it has heart, humor, great characters, suspense, consequences. You know, builds in those paranoid thrillers of the seventies. It has great action scenes, um, and it's actually got something to say as well with the whole notion of freedom. You know, this is a very different world that Cap is living in now compared to First Avenger, um, and what freedom actually means maybe to the modern world. So, it it, it again has great depth. Um, you know, Winter Soldier, First Avenger, it explored the U.S. military very heavily. Whereas with Winter Soldier, it's exploring S.H.I.E.L.D. You know, S.H.I.E.L.D. is a much more damaged entity in this movie, certainly, than it is in the book. In the book, it's certainly important, but in this, it, it forms the whole backbone of of the story. Uh, you know, it's, it's all about how best to run it. You've got people, political points scoring in it. You've got even Nick Fury, who's director of S.H.I.E.L.D. There's, there's even pay grades above him. Um... But yeah, it showcases how Steve is adapting to the modern world, you know, following the events of the first movie. Uh, it kicks off with an absolutely brilliant scene that I don't think we realize just how important or how spine-chilling a moment this scene would lead to nine years later. Uh, you know, Winter, uh, Winter Soldier kicks off with, you know, Sam Wilson, we're introduced to him, not straight away, we just see this guy running, and then you see Cap running behind him, and, and he consistently keeps passing him, running around all these different Washington monuments, and and I was only actually watching it again recently that I, I thought about this as well. Is this the first Marvel movie to take place outside of New York, aside from First Avenger, which is obviously during the World War, but we're not used to seeing landmarks of other American cities, I think, so it was... Possibly. It was interesting to see, you know, like the Washington Monument and, you know, Capitol Hill and all these things in the background. But, but yeah, so Cap keeps running past him. And obviously Cap is, you know, a, a dyed-in-the-wool guy with manners and old-school mentality. So he has to warn the guy he's running past that he's there and he's coming past him. So it's it's played for laughs and it's like on your left, 
on your left and even like the third time Sam was like don't say it <laughs> on your left he runs past them again but I mean it goes back to what I'm saying there too about long term setup and payoff I mean that led to possibly one of the top three moments of the entire Marvel Cinematic oh, Universe oh, oh yeah that just that moment in, in Endgame stuff is still tears in the eyes moment like no it really does it really <laughs> does um, if, if I had to if I had to test you right now would it be on your left or Cap's and Avengers Assemble for the first time? I'm, I'm currently re-watching with uh, Brona is watching for the first time most of the movies uh, in order. Um, and I was noting, you know, in, uh, in the last few movies, even in the Edge of Ultron, there's a couple of, you know, goes at Avengers Assemble that don't quite come through, you know, um, and all that. So I'm, I'm always waiting for that. I don't know. I think on your left maybe had more emotional resonance by the time it came around because it was unexpected. It was needed. It was the charge of the light brigade. It was, you know, it was, yeah. How about you, Riley? Yeah, on your left. <laughs> <laughs> but also, as you said that, I find obviously this Marvel movie's great tapestry of long-term storytelling, but this film just works on its own. Like, there's little things you could pick up upon, like, in the past and in the future, but as a standalone, it's just a great film as well. And it gives you, I think the really interesting thing it did was Natasha Romanoff, um, Scarlett Johansson, Black Widow, she almost takes the place of uh, Agent 13 in the book, although we do get a bit of Agent 13, but... Like it's, I know she was in Iron Man two and Avengers at this point, but I think it's really this film that really you get a really solid grip on her character. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I I would have described um, I would have described. I know it was Captain America two, but I would nearly have described uh, Winter Soldier as Avengers one point five, you know, and then Civil War was nearly Avengers two point five. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so important to the to the movies, really. You know, and uh, just I uh, yeah, absolutely. Introduction of introduction characters. I mean, this we have the introduction of Falcon. You have the introduction of Winter Soldier. Um, you have just the whole change, the whole the whole change in the you know the shield been brought down and and Hydra re been resurrected and. And the way it, it sets so much up moving forward in the Marvel Universe, as well as you say, being a, a fantastically strong standalone movie. That scene where just that the, the intensity of that scene where the up until now completely untouchable Nick Fury is is uh he's cornered and he's 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 boxed in and he's trying to get away from the Hydra agents and, and then the Winter Soldiers in the scene and you just think, No, <laughs> it's uh, Fury's a bit of a self-righteous bastard in this one. Um, you know, fear of freedom. He's, he thinks he's doing the right thing. I love the relationship and that dynamic between him and uh, Captain America. Yeah. And, uh, certainly the man out of time uh, comes into play there. Yeah. Cap's sort of, you know, his uh, attitude in the 40s, you know, that's that's a different war. Now he's, now he's at war with, his own government. He has to like he has to go against his his government to to prove what's right. You know that's that's what I find really interesting. And the way I see it is, I love the comic book, 
but I feel the film is still more relevant now because of everything that's going on with, you know, the U.S. at the moment, U.S. military and the U.S. government, and obviously, you know, Russia's involvement in the war and all that stuff and how we're using social media to, you know, protect people and all these Google... Yeah, yeah, the... Um, they, what do they call it? Spreading and all that sort of stuff. The, 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 I suppose what you're, you're talking about, Roddy, is the, is the, um, the comparison between Project Oversight and the movie, the, uh, the three helicarriers that are networked and picking targets, and mm. then the Cambridge Analytica thing, which is effectively targeting people's voting and targeting through big data. Yeah. You know? yeah. But then, you know, both of those are, both of those are a kind of fascism, and that's what Cap does. He mm. fights fascism. He, punches nazis you know <laughs> yeah you know he's uh so yeah i mean and it's funny you say that because i mean cap turning against his own government because there was a period of time where cap did no longer trust the government you know in the comics and he uh he, he first of all he left behind the captain america uh alias and became he became nomad and then he became the captain yeah. mm -hmm. uh, and that's where u.s agent uniform came from then u.s agent became John Walker was Captain America, much more violent, much more right-wing Captain America. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's when, that's actually when Jack Monroe became Cap's sidekick as Nomad whenever he was the captain. So, interesting, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff there, you know. Well, it's interesting as well. I might just, uh, I'm going to shock everyone right now and say, in a weird way, it's starting to give me a little bit more of an appreciation for Iron Man's journey through the movies. Because if you think about it, with with Steven, with Steven Cap, or sorry, with Cap and Iron Man, they're always polar opposites. So Steve turn, starts out as a guy who fully trusts his government and ultimately becomes the guy. I don't know why I'm video acting this out because no one's going to hear this. But Cap starts out as a guy who fully trusts his government. And then by the time we get to Civil War, is the opposite. He he basically questions everything the government's saying. Tony starts out as anti-authoritarian, and by civil war is like, no, we got to do this. So yeah. it is actually interesting to see how their two journeys mirror each other. Just thinking about it, it doesn't make Tony anymore an interesting character, but I just thought it was an, <laughs> I just thought it was an interesting, uh, an interesting mirror effect, so to speak. But <laughs> sorry, I couldn't go too deep in the the Iron Man love there. But uh, no, well that's it. I mean that that's what's great about this movie, you know, for me, because everyone has their own motives, you know, their own mission, their own loyalties. You know, at one point, you have you know the opening scene is is a great summation of this because the opening scene, Cap is just like we got to rescue the hostages, very single minded, whereas Natasha's there on a different mission to essentially gather intel, and Steve challenges Nick Fury in this later, and he's like, look, that's called compartmentalization. You know, your mission doesn't have to be the same as hers, but that's Steve's thought of humans first. Intel can worry about that later. You know what I mean? Yeah. Human life matters more than anything. And that's what's really interesting. And, you know, that opening scene as well on the boat with Cap and Black Widow and all the rest. I, I personally don't think there's been a better action scene in Marvel history. Because the, yeah. it's it's kind of grounded in some sort of realism. And yeah, also, yeah. it feels like an audition for me for the Russo's to make a Metal Gear Solid movie. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like the tanker <laughs> mission started Metal Gear 2. <laughs> right there, we, movie four. Remiss if we didn't talk about the elevator scene. Oh, the elevator scene is magnificent. Magic. One of the best scenes in 
uh, likewise, Alan, best combat scenes in, in Marvel history, like it really is that, and just that moment, just the, the lead up to it and the, the tension and the, you know, Cap's in the elevator and Rumlow gets on and, you know, Cap starts to notice things and he's he's more than just combat monster, like he's noticing, he's the detective, he's, he's picking up what's going on, he's, he's reading the room, despite the fact it's a small glass case, he's reading the people in, you know, and uh, you know, then it's the the, the tightening of the the tightening of the shield, and then that moment where he just goes, gentlemen, before we get started, does anyone want to get off? <laughs> just fantastic. Yeah. So talking about the uh, the action sequences in uh, the Winter Soldier, I have to say that one of my favorite parts of it is actually it's it's the first time we've had an opportunity to see what a badass Nick Fury is. You know, it's. Nick Fury, we, we talked about a little bit earlier about his representation in the graphic novels, very different to the, the, the MCU Nick Fury, but this is the first time you get to see him as an absolute badass. You know, <laughs> badass, but... <laughs> yeah, I, I'm surprised he didn't slide that in there somewhere, but... Uh, well, you know, he does later on in Endgame, doesn't he? Isn't he about the same mother? F- and then that's when he fades away. Um, there, is a, there is a Pulp Fiction reference at the end of uh, Winter Soldier he, on his gravestone. On his gravestone, Ezekiel twenty five seventeen. But, uh, yeah, the action sequence where he gets at- attacked in the city streets and, you know, y- you don't think this is a character who would ascend to the level that he does without being capable himself. And he remains calm under pressure. He allows, like, all the bullets to come. You know, it, it keeps counting down the structural integrity of the car and, you know, the, the over-automatic controls are trying to say, you know, should I do this? And he's like, wait, hold that order, hold that order. Defensive mechanisms. And then he ends up doing it right on cue and getting out. And it's only really... Bucky that stops him in the end he ends up using this pretty cool um sort of bomb that goes underneath the car and then tilts like a, it. Like a limpet mine nearly it, it sticks slides across the road along the road and then sticks to the bottom of the, the car yeah but uh it's a real tense real tense moment you know whenever you know he's surrounded by the you know he's surrounded by the hydra agents you know dressed up as the cops and they're boxing him in the cars and he's getting away and he's waiting and he's waiting and then he it's that mini gun, isn't it? That yeah. Pops up for yeah. The, yeah. So yeah. And he just takes exactly. a whole takes a whole pile of them out, and then even you know once you think Winter Soldier's got him cornered, he's still able to cut his way out of there and sort of escape through the sewers and stuff. So, uh, yeah. I just really enjoyed in this part that it actually showed how capable he was, and then it leads to a great scene in in Captain America's apartment where he's sitting there, you know, he's putting actual messages on his phone saying we might be being bugged, but saying other things out loud and all the rest. Uh, but one thing I did notice, and and this will come on to another point I, I was thinking about, when I was rewatching it recently, there's a story beat that is perfectly in sync with The Dark Knight, in that, if you remember in The Dark Knight, Commissioner Gordon gets shot, and they play him off as if he's dead, and then he comes back just at the right time when they take the Joker down in the streets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in this, you know, they, they fake... Nick Fury, Dan, just for him to come back at the exact moment where he's able to, like, you know, use his eye to um, to override the controls along with Aaron Pierce and right. Shield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, yeah, it was just yeah. a wee story beat that reminded me of it. But uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's the... kind of cool. Cause... Oh, sorry, Alan. No, 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 all. You go ahead. Um, I was gonna say it's the same like we were talking about um, Black Widow earlier. It's maybe the first film that you've got to see Nick Fury, and it's because of the characterization of him that you actually you care and that scene means a lot because you like he was he was important before but he wasn't 
a supporting character in a film. He was like the the guy that tied all the films together. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, sorry to sorry to interrupt. You go ahead. No, not at all. No, I was just, I was just going to the the point in a way I'm trying to make as as well. I suppose it's just the the Captain America trilogy to me. It, it stands as my favorite trilogy in the Marvel universe. You know, as anybody who knows me knows, I'm not an Iron Man fan. Uh, <laughs> just in case you didn't know that, I'll just say it again. Uh, Thor trilogy is very uneven, but there's greatness in it. Uh, but the the Captain America trilogy it reminds me of the Dark Knight trilogy. You have a great origin story for the first movie. You have arguably the best movie. Again, this is just my opinion. Just my opinion. Uh, you have arguably the strongest movie in the middle, and then you have a third movie that is maybe a little bit, a little bit more patchy, but just really really enjoyable as well. So uh, I suppose it's the ultimate compliment I can give the MCU movies that it gets so close to my holy trinity. You know? <laughs> well, I actually have the same sort of thinking as you, to be honest. Yeah, I've got. Yeah. I think I've got a lot more love for um, Civil War than you do, but um, I wasn't quite um, as big on Dark Knight Rises. But um, the first two, absolutely love. But that's a wild tangent. Well, yeah, talk, I trust, trust you to get DC yes. into a Marvel talk. <laughs> well. I mean, we were chatting earlier on about about the the fact that you know the whenever you look at it, the movie is really an extremely loose adaptation of the the Brubaker and Epting comic. But you know, to me, just when you're talking about story beats, Alan, you know those those the story beats were there. You know, you've got the the mysterious lethal assassin, the Winter Soldier. He starts knocking off people close to Cap. You know, we we learned that he's been a black ops agent for ages and that rather than in this case being owned by, you know, Hydra, he's owned by the Russian government, you know. Uh, Cap figures out he's Bucky. They have a bit of a fight. Cap forces Bucky to remember who he is. Bucky goes in the wrong. He's torn apart by confusion and regret, you know, and, and, and heading towards redemption and that. So, you know, all of, those, all of those story beats from the comic are in the movie. So despite the fact... It's a very it's a very loose adaption. Mm -hmm. Those those things are there, and then you know the other thing that's interesting is I don't know if you you noticed, but on rewatching the movie, I think Bucky probably has more lines in the comic than he does in the movie, despite the fact he's such a massive presence in the movie. So, yeah. and given the fact that it's, it's called Captain America: The Winter Soldier, you know he's the title character. He he has probably less than twenty lines of dialogue in the whole movie. <laughs> He's clearly went you know, to the you know. he's went to the Arnold Schwarzenegger school of negotiation of being paid per word in the movie. <laughs> you That's kind of cool because it's they build um, it's you know the mystique is built around him, and when he rocks up, he's all physical presence really, and he's a threat because he's you built him up as a threat. You know, yeah. it's like yeah, he's like remember in Shakespeare where you talk about the character and then they appear. You have the characters in the the play talking about the character so you you're like oh yeah this guy um, yeah but yeah it's it's interesting to me because in the book the relationship is played out in all these flashbacks yeah and i think if that was done in the movie it would feel so cheap but it's just it's like those the two different mediums working whereas it feels legitimate in the comic and because you have all these whether it's retroactive um, retconning or not, it's still you. You know that history's there, but yeah, you know you haven't you haven't read all the books, but you know, 
but in the film in the first film it's it's laid down for you like and it's really good you actually see obviously the relationship's a bit different but you see the relationship between the two and it's it's really great you feel the bond yeah and that's what makes the second one so important yeah i mean it's you know if the film had been told in flashbacks it's like it would feel so you know cheap or something it's a cheap i don't know why like if sometimes it can be done really well in films but it, mostly the flashbacks in movies feel a bit cheap and then the other thing Ronnie, there is i mean look at the look at the the difference in the span of time you know the the what the 40 mm-hmm. years span of time you know and the four years span of time you know so and some of in some ways you could nearly look at the first avenger as the flashback <laughs> you know what i mean yeah <laughs> so it's yeah. uh you know it'd be interesting actually to yeah you could, you know, could you could you cut it up so could you cut the two movies together so that the Winter Soldier becomes the movie and First Avenger becomes the flashbacks. <laughs> you know I mean? Four hour supercuts. Yeah, yeah, something like those. But I mean, well, definitely. You know I mean, yeah. Oh, sorry. No, do you know what they could have? They could have done that. Lesser films would have, you know, placed like, you know, little memory sections or like a, you know, like before the big ending of the movie, it would have had like a wee. You know, like a montage of them, like you know, yeah. <laughs> just before the war or something. You know, in, in some ways they did emotionally. They had they had Peggy on her deathbed and Cap coming to visit her. They had mm-hmm. uh, uh, Black Widow and Cap returning to Camp Lahai. You know, and Cap going, you know, them seeing the building and Cap going, that building's not supposed to be there. It's not regulation. You know, and that's where they <laughs> find uh, they find the the Arnon Zola computer. You know, yeah. his you know, and all of that sort of stuff, but. Yeah, I mean, there's some real, there's some real great. I think, I think, Bucky really strikes an emotional chord in that, that moment where, where, where Steve just, you know, the first time his mask gets pulled off and Steve goes, Bucky, and Bucky's first words are, "Who the hell is Bucky?" That <laughs> you know, was kind of, was kind of cool, you know, and, uh, I, and I think you're, you're right, Alan. You know, the, the moment in the movie when he's revealed is really is a great moment. You know, and up until that point, you know, and, and most of the movies, this is this, you know, super efficient, you know, assassin, this killer. And then, you know, later later on in the movie, whenever they're, you know, the, the third act, you know, when they're um, they're putting the the uh, the blades into the, the different uh, heli carriers, mm-hmm. you know, and Cap faces Bucky. There's definitely he's definitely more 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 confused and more vulnerable. You know, as Steve sort of works on him and refuses to fight him, you know, and uh, yeah, he's uh, he definitely you know, so that you know from from that precise killing machine to that scared, confused, vulnerable individual, you know, who's can who just doesn't know who he is, doesn't know what he is, you know, um, and in some ways, whenever you look at the third movie, although it's Civil War, Winter Soldier is actually much more present in it. He's much more uh, he's got he's more prominent, you know. And uh, he's on the run, and you know Cap turns against everybody he knows, you know, in order and the Avengers to protect Bucky, and you know we see Bucky struggling with his past, and uh, you know I think your man's just a great performer, um, Sebastian Stan, you know the, you know he's he's one minute he's this lethal killer, and the next minute he's just vulnerable and and sort of heartbreaking, you know, so it's interesting stuff. Well, it's, yeah, it it's a big testament, I think, to the planning of the movies that when Winter Soldier came out, I saw it twice in the cinema in its original run. I then saw it a third time as part of a triple bill. 
which was the first Avengers, then Winter Soldier, then Age of Ultron. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe that's why I didn't enjoy Age of Ultron so much, because it followed yeah. Winter Soldier. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. <laughs> but uh, the first two times I saw it, now obviously I'm a bit more well-versed in comics, and even though I didn't know that Bucky, even though I hadn't read Winter Soldier, I knew Bucky was the Winter Soldier. But it was interesting to go to a packed theatre of people who maybe don't read comics, just watch the movies. And that moment where Cap flips the Winter Soldier over his shoulder and you see the mask drop to the ground and he turns around in that almost shampoo advert way with that beautiful long flowing hair and looks at him. I actually heard audible gasps in the cinema. Oh, definitely. Both, yeah. both times. And that, that's a testament to the long setup of the movie because, or the long setup of the Marvel Universe because... As you say, Roddy, it would have been really cheap to just do flashbacks and this and that, but the key scene that reminded you about Bucky was just a very quick one in Washington in the Captain America Museum, where mm-hmm. Cap's walking around and then they, they're like, oh, James Buchanan Barnes was the only member tragically to give his life for, you know, That's right, yeah. all yeah. this kind of stuff, but... Yeah, I mean, the, the, the character definitely goes on a journey through the movie. There, I only really noticed it in the most recent time, and it was maybe because I'd read the book, but... It's a throwaway line in the movie, but it adds a lot of depth to it. And that's where one of the scientists says to Pierce, he's been out too long. And that's mm-hmm. why he's so confused, because all the stuff that they show of the, the you know, the accidents will happen, as Zola says, um, they were all very spread out. So the Winter Soldier was only thawed for maybe a day, two days. But the events of Winter Soldier in the movie take place over four, five, six, seven days. And he seems mm-hmm. to be thawed for all of it. And that's why... It's obviously yeah. wearing off a lot more, you know. So, yeah, just you know, great. And that was pulled. Stuff. You know, that was pulled straight from the comic as well, because yeah. and that that uh, Roddy's favorite issue uh, we were talking about a wee while ago um, with a with a you know the flashbacks and the origin and the lab the lab notes and that you know you yeah. talk about different times he's been out and if he's out maybe two or three days at a time or a week at a time and then whenever he goes off he goes off the reservation you know and he's he's thawed for a longer time and. You know, then they have to break. You you know, he starts to reassert himself. So yeah, so yeah, it's it's, it's just great. It's just fantastic. You know, um, yeah, really, really good. I mean, what do you reckon about about the relative the relative relationships then between the movie Bucky and Cap and the comic Bucky and Cap? I'll let you take this one first, Roddy, because I'll ramble on for about an hour. <laughs> In terms of, for me, it feels much more immediate. You know, um, it's it's just the it's a difference in the mediums, isn't it? Because you, I think you feel their relationship much much stronger in the films. But as a longtime reader of comics and a historian, you might feel that way too. But certainly, as somebody that wasn't super well versed in the Marvel universe, you know, and I assume when they brought him back, they were just like, "Oh, here, you know, here's Buck, this guy, Bucky." Um, so maybe you didn't have that emotional attachment to him, but you do yeah. because of the the first Avenger, because mm-hmm. you get to see him, you get to like live his journey, that part of his life with him. So I think to me, it certainly feels more intimate. Is the wrong kind of word, but you're you know you're closer to a film, I think, at times. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. What yeah. about you? Man? I mean, for me, the the Cap Bucky relationship is the heart and soul of the whole Marvel universe. You know. The old joke is a better love story than Twilight. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, this, I mean, going back again, I hate having to go back to Iron Man again. But the whole reason in Civil War that I'm on Cap's side is because I feel that bond between 
Bucky and Cap is so ironclad. Like, you believe that Steve Rogers will give his life for his friend. And as you say, it's a lot easier to do that in the more immediate medium of film. I mean, I'd be curious to know, when you read Captain America Winter Soldier for the first time, Keith, was there any buzz around it? Was there any, like, you'll never guess who Marvel are bringing back? Or was it, no, or was it a genuine, like, turn the page and went, what was, the hell? Those type of articles didn't exist back in yeah. those days. <laughs> yeah, so... I believe. <laughs> there was less, there was much less of that at the time. Yeah. Uh, certainly, you know, and so it was a very, a very, I mean, yeah, that, that's the difference is the, is that slow, slow release, you know, so, you know, Fury finds out and Sharon knows before Cap does, you know, and it's that, they're slowly, in, in the comic, they're slowly building the evidence and letting you figure it out yourself. Yeah. Um, and as you figure it out, you figure it out about the same time as Cap does, you know, and so that, that, there was no, yeah, look who's, look who's back, back again, you know, that sort of way, there's none of that. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a much more, uh, much more slow, slow burn, slow build. And that I think was where the satisfaction of the story was. And that I think is where the acceptance of the fandom was. Yeah. You know, because they were on the journey along with Cap, you know, we were on the journey along with Cap and along with Ed Brubaker to, you know, so I think, you know, it it was, it was bringing people along with them that, that made it work, you know, so, um, so yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. Then obviously one of the key things is 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 the change the change in the relationship and that you know in the in the comic, you know Steve is the big brother and Bucky's the little brother, whereas it nearly is flipped in its head a wee bit, you know, in the movie. Um, you know, and the reason obviously, uh, I think it was Marcus. It was uh, you know one of the writers that that said it. You know, he put it. He says there's just no way even a stylized movie you can bring an eleven year old into World War Two. <laughs> so. <laughs> So that's the change of Bucky from little brother to big brother. So, uh, you know, so that was kind of interesting as well. So, yeah, especially yeah. when they go to such lengths in First Avenger to show how Steve is not does not qualify for the army based on his size and stature and allergies and all this. But this eleven year old over here, he's great. Let him in. <laughs> Let him in. That would be the ultimate yeah, kick in yeah. the face for Steve, I think, yeah, at the time. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I, I, to be fair, I don't think Bucky was eleven, as we said. Yeah, you know, he went from being about fifteen to about twenty-one uh, during that time period. But um, anything else? Then jumping out, movie ways. Um, no, I suppose we can sort of wrap it up and sort of think of our final thoughts a little bit. I mean. Just before we reach our final thoughts, just one thing I did notice that I think is quite interesting. It's actually more to do with the, the comic than the than the movie, but I found it really interesting. You know, Keith and I recently wrote, read a book called Slugfest: The Difference Between Marvel and uh, the Difference Between Marvel and DC, and the rivalry. The rivalry, I should say, yeah. And it's and it's really interesting that <clears throat> the same year that Bucky's brought back in Marvel, they brought back Jason Todd in DC, and the the. The comparisons between the two, I, I, I made a list, you know. Uh, former ally sidekick of the main hero, long considered dead. Both main characters have been carrying years of guilt over their deaths. Both characters are introduced as villains before their identity is revealed. Both were brought back to life through nefarious means. Both had their psychology screwed up with how they were resurrected. Both were more than happy killing people, something they would not have done as heroes. And both eventually see the error of their ways and become heroes again, albeit flawed ones. Just really interesting that in the same year, I I would love to know because in Slugfest they talk a lot about how they would like the writers would maybe have a coffee in the same cafe and they would be listening over their shoulder and you know if DC guys were talking about that or Marvel guys were talking about that. But 
just yeah, that was Secret it. Wars and Infinite Crisis and Infinite Earths and yeah. all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think it's an interesting point to do, and I think there's something there. Um, but for me, and we we touched upon it earlier on, there's a more uh, a more robust comparison between uh, Bucky and Dick Grayson's Robin than there is between Bucky and Jason Todd's Robin. Mm-hmm. So that's why that's why I don't feel that the two things are as comparable. Uh, because I don't think I don't think the thing with the Red Hood had quite the same impact as the Winter Soldier's story. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I that, Jesus, I was old enough before I even realised that there was a difference between, you know, the 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 Robin that was killed by the Joker and and Robin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so I don't know. Um, are you saying was... are you saying that it, it took it only took Marvel one character to achieve what DC needed two characters to achieve? I don't know. No, I don't <laughs> know if that's what I'm saying. I just I just don't think and I, maybe you disagree with me, but I don't think the two things have the same impact. Oh I I totally agree. Uh, I mean if I had to rank them, I mean the, the Bucky is much more powerful. it's just yeah. interesting that story beat wise, I thought that they were quite similar, but no Jason's return is nowhere near as impactful as Bucky's, I would say. And, uh, but there is there is one point of major comparison between the two, you know, between uh, Robin, as in Dick Grayson, Robin, mm-hmm. and Bucky, is that is that Dick Grayson eventually went on to wear the cowl himself, and Bucky eventually went on to wield the shield himself. And and there's uh, where we'll probably leave it movie wise as well because it, it still breaks your heart that the cap handed that shield to Sam Wilson, not to Bucky. <laughs> well, you know, Sam's a worthy <laughs> Sam's a worthy successor, you know, but. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting. It's a an interesting uh, an interesting threesome, I suppose. Yeah, you know the the uh, yeah, but uh, but yeah, great, great, great book, good movie. Yeah. Cool, cool. So yeah, we'll just wrap it up there. Pretty much, you know, just final thoughts, I suppose. I mean, for me, they're both undoubted classics of their respective mediums. You know, you have to remember when Phase Two Marvel it was stuttering for maybe the first time. I thought. When Winter Soldier came out, you know, Iron Man 2 wasn't what people wanted. And certainly it, was, it wasn't it was as good as the first one. Thor The Dark World came out. It wasn't quite as well received as the first one. And then Winter Soldier came along with this confidence and clarity with what it wanted to achieve. And, you know, who could have thought that a movie inspired by 70s espionage movies directed by two TV comedy writers or directors could have steadied the ship and then set the course for the juggernaut of storytelling? and interconnectivity the MCU would become. So, yeah, they're both fantastic. Final thought is, I slightly prefer the movie. Sorry, Keith. <laughs> go on, Roddy. Um, I'm going to go with Alan on this one. I think um, they are both classics, modern classics for sure. Definitely what Alan was saying about the MCU was really, that's really interesting, a really pivotal moment too. Um, because Thor two was a dud. Watched it again recently, and I watched Iron Man two again recently, and uh, Iron Man three actually, and uh, and I enjoyed them both more than I did previously. Um, but yeah, um, I feel like both of them really capture. I think maybe the film a little bit more captures and has the cap that I love that man out of time. You know, confused sort of. But still, really at one with his beliefs. I really enjoy that part, and that for me is my cap. The cap conflicted with the Cosmic Cube stuff wasn't is completely different for me. But I love how both carry the relationship, like you guys were saying, and I love how they both are 
they're tied to each other, but they're sort of opposite ends of, you know, what the military can do to you, um, which I find really interesting. And then, yeah, I think um, the film just nudges it for me because, you know, it's given our landscape and the political landscape, I think it's still more than relevant today. So I'm going to go for the film, but, oh, man, that the comic for what it did for my sort of like fandom as well it has to has to go up there you know got Thanks, me at the moment, so <laughs> that's Not never bad. a bad thing Roddy <laughs> <laughs> um well I mean you can't ask me to choose between two children you know I mean I would just be okay <laughs> um but you know just to just to, to go back to what we we sort of started with was you know we were talking about how sometimes comic book characters can seem to be sort of stuck in amber you know and and, and just not change after they've been created and tweaked, you know, but, you know, and during Breakers run, you know, not 10 issues later, you know, Cap is, Cap is assassinated, Cap's killed um, after Civil War, and eventually Steve comes back from the dead and eventually becomes Captain America again, taking back the shield from, from Bucky. Uh, further proof in some ways that more often than not, characters' status quo don't change for long, but Bucky never went back, you know, up until now, you know, both in the comics and the movies, you know, he has this metal arm, he has the long hair, he has the troubled past, he has the post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, it's all there. And on top of that, the nature of the, the sort of Captain America arc, archetype has sort of changed. You know, his empathy for regretful friendship with Bucky now are, are elements that were totally absent from Cap for like the 60-odd years that, that Bucky was dead, you know. And they're now defining traits of, of Captain America, you know. So... You know, Brubaker said he didn't want to play it like uh, you never you never came looking for me, so I hate you sort of a thing. You know, from Bucky, you know, he didn't he didn't want it to be that. He says he wanted it to be more tragic than it than it being. They were three trains racing each other. That, that he felt that this wasn't a revenge story; it was a redemption story. Yeah, and yeah. I think you know, with that being the case, I think absolutely, absolutely nailed it. Full of full of heart, you know, full of heartache. Uh, for both characters, um, you know, and 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 both mediums, just in a different way. Uh, so, so I think I think for me, they're they're just they're they're the the story in different mediums, told in different ways as befits those mediums. Um, but yeah. you know, I would say obviously without without what Brie Baker and Hepting and the team did, you know, on the Winter Soldier book, you wouldn't have the Winter Soldier movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's. Um... And just one more thing for me, it's pure proof. You know, we're living in what, like 80 or more years of comic books, and more often than not, what you said at the start, they're standing still. But maybe the legacy of the Winter Soldier is that comics don't have to stay still forever, the status quo can change, and that's mm -hmm. a thing. You can hopefully introduce more stuff like this and play with classic characters and lore and change the landscape because it can be boring after a while you know so yeah, yeah. i think that's that's for me the legacy of that the winter soldier anyway yeah you're not wrong you're not wrong cool so that is going to do it then for our exceptionally deep dive into both medium <laughs> representations of captain america the winter soldier uh, it wouldn't go long if we didn't love it no well this is very true this is very true so uh just want to say thanks to keith for picking it doing a lot of research on it uh been a pleasure chatting about it um i was trying to think of sort of for our next book club what we should do and i thought a nice jumping point might be and you i think you'll enjoy this roddy we're going to go from winter soldier 
to Gotham Central. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I'm. You didn't tell me about this. You just waited until we were on air. I, I waited like until right now. Um, I like it. Yeah, Keith. Is, Keith has never read it, and obviously with the Brubaker connection, the Michael Lark connection, and then factoring in Greg Rucka and so forth as well, and to a lesser extent. While we won't have a movie to compare it to, we might compare it quickly to the uh, interesting Gotham show that <laughs> I watched. That I watched seven episodes of. Uh, anyway, so we'll leave it there. Uh, thanks very much as always, guys. Uh, pleasure seeing you. Yep. Nice to see your faces, and uh, yep. we will no doubt be back recording sometime soon. Stay safe out there, guys. Nice one, Jim. Sleep tight. Thanks very much. We'll see you soon, folks. Bye. Bye. Bye.